party started. This is Ghetto. Broadcasting live from the studios of AM570. It's on a website. This is FNA. I am a god. Now what? Why don't you get out of that jumpsuit and let me smack that fat ass? That's a scary crew. As far as the product goes, uh, voice of a new generation, man. You guys are the young guys. Are really at the top of their games. The two of them had something in common. We bring you Radio Ecstasy. Oh, it's beautiful. Broadcasting live from the studios of AM570. FNA. FNA. Let it happen. This is the FNA Podcast. Welcome in to the FNA Podcast on a Monday. Oh. Now, I am not here to get my ass beat on Monday. Well, Dodgers don't play tonight, so no ass beatings. That was uncalled for. I'm. Come on. <laughs> I mean. It's not like they lost the series four games to one or something. I mean, it's like, it's like they lost that poorly. It's not like they got swept. I mean, geez. They did win like an 18-inning you know, game. It's not like they should have got swept if it wasn't for a second baseman who was a gold glover, you know, booting it. Okay. Got they could have won either the first two games, though, also. They were in those games. It was 5-4 in the seventh in game one. It was 2-2, I think, in the fifth in game two. It was. It was. Oh well, the most it's about fr- the moves. Well, before I think the moves is part of it, and then the uh, just the lack of being able to hit situationally killed them a lot too. Over uh, their last sixteen batters, they went over sixteen guys in a row. Yeah, that hurts. At the end of game two, that hurts. Uh, we'll get into that uh, in a second here. Actually, uh, we yeah. do want to set up the show. Let you guys know you can follow us on Twitter at FNA Show, also on Instagram and Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at KFig One Adam. Is at follow Adam A. Ryan Oslin. Yes. FNAPodcast.com. Click on the Amazon link and then buy to your heart's desire whatever you want, especially if you got Amazon Prime. It gets there in two days. And then RippedApparel.com, which has the best shirts of all time. It really does. I think I bought four of them the other day. Nice. I like it. <laughs> I like it. I the- use the FNA promo code. And Save ten percent. Get ten percent off every single damn time you do it. There's no. Now there's no. That's not like a statute. Like okay, you use this code like five days in a row. I don't think it matters. No. You just type in FNA every single time you go. As much as you want. That's right. Even on the shirts that are only, I think, $13, the three daily new ones that are up there on RippedApparel.com, every mm-hmm. day you can still use the promo code. So do it. Save like a buck and a half. Or yeah, I'm pretty sure they have some gimmicky, like Halloween-esque type of shirts that are trending right now up on oh, Ripped Apparel yeah. for sure. That's a good point. And with Halloween creeping up on us in a couple of days here, we have a special Halloween, Halloween movie themed geek news do we not adam yeah we were gonna do it last week but there's still a couple days to watch all these movies we're going to list (laughs) it will literally take you both whole days but yeah uh if not more i don't know if it's possible (laughs) i'm about to drop 80 movies oh yeah they're you're you will be halloween themed yeah in seven different categories (laughs) and we do this every year it's our annual Halloween movie reveal. It's like the Textoso reveal. Yeah, it'll be like one of those half and half, those photos that they show when they make fun of like things that take a long period of time. So you're sitting there like, oh, when I, when I first started watching the movies, you're sitting there on the couch, and then they go to another photo, and it's just a skeleton sitting there <laughs> with your clothes hanging off of your bones well, after I finished the Halloween marathon. It was like the 18-inning game. People said, this is how Larry King looked at the beginning <laughs> of the game. And it was a picture when he was 20, and then they showed how he looked behind the backstop at the game. Right. <laughs> That's how he looks now. That's how long this game is gone. Uh, okay, so yeah, back into the show in Geek News. We will talk Halloween movies. Take your phone calls also because we teased this out last week. We wanted 
your recommendations, and whoever gives the best one will win $40 on the Talk S Hotline. And which... we do have five five callers Whoa! to get to. Wowzers. You want to talk some shit? A lot of people want to talk some ass. Now, somebody may have double-dipped, just looking at the phone numbers coming up on my bank here. So somebody double-dipped. Well, they're disqualified. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Something it, tells me I know. double-up show of record. Yeah. Uh, uh. Yeah. Quit trying to bite a real show. Somebody tells me. twins out here. Looking at this phone number that I have a good idea of who it is, and I'll just oh, say this, no. Adam. They probably weren't going to win anyway. Why are you mad at me, Adam? Knowing you. I'm not I... saying any names. Okay. I'm just saying. I'm just, just telling you. Here's a name. Second segment of the, sh- of the show. Hmm. This guy is coming on. Here's a sound to tease the name. I had Roger Clemens. Yeah. The skipper, Kevin Kennedy, is coming on our show. He may be coming on other shows, but when he comes on our show, it's like the special edition. It's the extended edition. It's the rated or unrated edition. It's the special edition with, like, the CGI Ewoks? No. This is embarrassing. Not like that. Okay. Not like that. I just want to make sure. With the superimposed Hayden Christensen at the end? Oh, we don't talk about that. <laughs> you underestimate I mean, my saying, power. You bring up special edition form. That's the first thing I think of. So that is the worst thing about those movies when they remade them, and that's the worst thing George Lucas has ever done. And by the way, Adam was not messing around. He's legitimately pissed. I am pissed. Wouldn't you be? <laughs> not really. It's all funny to me. I don't care. But Childhood was ruined. He's like a Jedi mind. No Jedi mind trick could make me think that the special editions are okay. (laughs) These are the special editions you're looking for. No, I'm never looking for a special edition unless it's Kevin Kennedy who's going to go long-form interview with us today to break down everything that happened in the World Series. He went out of his way to say, I have plenty of time to talk to you guys. I have a lot to get off my chest when it comes to this particular series. And I said, hey, there's no commercials. I mean, we can do whatever the hell we want, Skip. It's so static off its chest like sublime. That's right. So we'll just we'll open up the mic and just let you go, Skip. A former manager in the big leagues. He's our favorite analyst ever in mm-hmm. any sport. He uh, works for AM570, calls games with Rick Monday. You hear him on the Petros and Money Show. He's been coming on there for a long time. But it's always good to have him in. We had him before the playoffs started. We get him on the bookends of both when the playoffs start and end yesterday. They and ended. If you get the Sirius XM, cop on that as well. He's on the MLB Network channel. They do a good channel over there at the uh, for MLB. So that's pretty good. Okay. First off, though, it's amateur hour with <laughs> us talking about the World Series. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go time. Let's run. Now, we started off the show talking about the issues the Dodgers had in this series. We couldn't even wait. Many of them managerial, and which are fairly obvious. Yeah. The uh, kids are playing their tail off, and the coaches are screwing it up. Well, some kids were. The Dodgers as a whole batted 179 in the series. And in a nutshell, is that not really the biggest issue above all else? I mean, the fact that you were in a lot of games, yes, it makes those managerial blunders even bigger. But, man, the Red Sox with two outs and runners in scoring position seemed to cash in not every time. They were incredible. But for the, throughout the entire postseason, they hit over 390. Someone said during Ted Williams' season when he hit 400, the last guy to hit 400, he had a worse hitting percentage with two outs than the Red Sox did as a team. He had a worse average than the Red Sox did as a team in the playoffs with two outs. So, I mean, what does that tell they you? They were having a moment. They would look like a team of destiny. They did. And now yeah, you took the words right, stacked. right out of my mouth. They're extremely <laughs> stacked, extremely talented. But there, String hits together. There were two areas where they could have been deficient. Their and defense. Chris Sale wasn't great in game one. No. And Price has been god-awful. 
in the playoffs for his career. His first, he was 0-9 in the playoffs coming in to this season with a 6 ERA. Mm-hmm. That's way worse than Kershaw. Uh, yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> but he leaves going 3-0 and in this playoff run with a 2.66 ERA. Beats Kershaw yesterday. Insult to injury. You get to see David Price exorcise his playoff demons, but it wasn't meant to be for Kershaw. Yeah, I mean, and Price was the guy. I mean, they he, they they tried to make a big deal out of the fact they didn't lose his first start. He was just like, well, he's he's not he's, yeah. he's not he was he was zero nine. We won as a team. We won, but he didn't get the win. <laughs> but his last three starts, the closeout game against Houston. Game two against beat the Dodgers. Verlander yeah. And beat Kershaw. Nobody's ever done that in the playoffs before. Beat two former Cy Youngs. So to your point, being able to exercise his demons, you wonder if that gives Clayton Kershaw maybe a glimmer of hope that, hey, man, there's another guy that struggled for the majority yeah. of his career and he's not all is not lost. Now he's a little younger. Be, be, be better if it did, he didn't do it against Kershaw. Yeah, it makes it look a lot worse. <laughs> that does make it Get look a lot side worse. Side-by-side comparison. Here's somebody who was even worse in the playoffs, and he just had a great run to help his team win against yeah. you. So that makes us sting a lot more. But a lot of the fingers outside of, look, we realize that the Dodgers, look, the Dodgers were deficient in hitting and driving guys in in the NLCS against Milwaukee, to be honest. Both teams were. Risp was a problem. Yeah, especially for both teams in that series, by the way. The, the heart of their order for both of those teams didn't do squat for the majority of the Cody series. Cody Bellinger had two hits and, and won the MVP. the MVP just because the moment and how big those hits were. Right, and that's all it was. So offense was an issue going back to that series. So that's what made the managing and the managerial decisions in-game so much more important oh. because the Dodgers – we knew coming into the series, by the way, had less margin for error than the Red Sox did. Yeah. Because even if the they Red Sox near perfect. were deficient in their starting staff with Chris Sale, and we knew about the issues with his stamina, obviously, and then the issues with uh, David Blue Price Pill. having <laughs> all of you. his problems, that at the very least we knew the Red Sox can score runs. The Red Sox were very, very capable of being able to win games, hey, 8-4. to four. Or nine to six, or ten to twelve, or excuse me, twelve to ten, something like yeah. that. The Dodgers just didn't have that kind of capital this postseason. The way they were able to win games, a couple of games in the regular season, and win fourteen to two, and win fifteen to three one day, but then go ice cold for a week, and then pick it back up again for a series against lesser opponents. You just knew they weren't going to be able to do that against quality pitchers the deeper and deeper you got into the postseason. And I think that, from just an offensive standpoint, not being able to score runs is what ended up costing them from that standpoint. Yeah, but their starting pitching wasn't good. And outside of Walker Bueller, yeah. they were terrible, and they were supposed to have an advantage possibly with their pitching, but it didn't show up for them. Once again, Clayton Kershaw doesn't show up in, when, in their time of need. Right. And then Hunjun Ryu who for some reason was going on the road in Game 2 instead of Rich Hill. I I couldn't believe that. Everybody thought when we had talked to, I think, Eric Steven, everybody was assuming it was going to be Kershaw, Rich Hill, Walker Bueller, Hunjun Ryu. They would go at home. Rich Hill was a Boston Red Sox. He knows Fenway. Actually pitched pretty good for them in relief before he went to the A's and then the Dodgers. And I've heard some speculate that, well, the cold air, the blister, Mr. Blister could pop up on him. Well, that it would affect the break on his curveball. It's like, I, 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 I can't speak to that sort of thing. What would you give up? A, five earned <laughs> in four innings, something like that? Was it five or four? It was four, either four, it was or five. four or five. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't good, and it didn't help that they brought in the wrong guys when there was traffic on the base paths. Alex Wood 
Everybody raised an eyebrow when they saw he was on the you World Series roster. He had given up home runs in the playoffs. He did to not lefties. look good coming out in relief. Yeah, his specialty wasn't working for him. Now, Ryan Madsen had been very good in the playoffs. But after what happened in Game 1, where technically, yes, his ERA was still zero, but he gave up every run he inherited in this series. And you let him back out there in Game 2 in a very similar situation. I... It almost looked like they were trying to push the wrong buttons to lose. It was so strange to see. It was so frustrating, I'm sure, for Dodger fans. Madsen looked like Brandon Morrow from last year. When you ran him into the ground and he just had nothing left by that last time they brought him in in Game 5. Right, he's up there. (laughs) He's not going to be able to do this every single time you put him out. At the the smallest instance, you see, okay, this guy's struggling a little bit. Uh, He struggled the night before. He struggled in Game 2. They brought him back in. What was it, Game 4? Yeah, when they brought him in. And he gave up up the home run. It's just at one point, I understand what what the the analytics and the numbers might be able to say about a guy, and I know he's gotten you out of trouble in the past. But at what point do you realize this guy may not have it? Maybe he can benefit from having an extra day outside of putting him out there every single solitary time when he's showing signs of not being effective. That just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And why not just bring in your best guys first? Why not go with Pedro Baez right away in that high high leverage situation? Baez, give him credit; he had a great year. Sure did. And he looked unhittable in the playoffs. Uh, the and, and, and you could talk analytics, but some of the stuff they did went against analytics. Why would you pitch Hunter and Ryu on the road and not keep him for a home game? Unless is it was it, deeper analytics with how the left field wall is stacked versus dimensions of X's. Because, I mean, yeah, from the, from the simple stats, it's like, okay, his ERA is like, what, a point, 1.4 like better at home than it is on the road or something. From a simplistic standpoint like that, it makes all the sense in the world to start him at home. All of us raised an eyebrow, which made well, me think maybe there was something deeper within the numbers that they yeah. found that they thought he would pitch better at Fenway than he would at Dodger Stadium. Maybe there is, but that was the reason he started game one against Atlanta. They wanted to get him at home. But then he started in Milwaukee and got blown up there. Exactly. You just got a good sample size of how he shows up on the road. And I just felt like Rich Hill is the gamer. He's the guy that I want, especially down 0-1. And I know they already released their first two starting pitchers before the before uh, the World Series even started in Game One, and so it was already set up for Hunter and Ryu. You can always change it. I'm going. I'm going Rich Hill. Yeah, yeah great council too. has. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going Rich Hill in Game Two. And by the way, letting Clayton Kershaw stay out there so long is against analytics. They give him this long leash. A guy who has pitched 150 innings in the playoffs. And now his playoff ERA is 4.32, I think. It's not going to change much over his career, (laughs) assuming he's back with the Dodgers or wherever else he goes. He gets back into the playoffs. There's such a big sample size on him now. Fourth elimination game in his career, he's allowed four or more earned runs. That's a record for anybody that's ever pitched in the history of baseball. He has all the records you don't want by a pitcher now in the playoffs. His ERA is almost two runs higher on the nose than it is career-wise in the regular season. And the one thing I kept thinking about is, and I remember we talked about this a couple years ago, because the Dodgers have been there six straight years. They've been in the playoffs. Last two years, they go to the World Series. We've seen Clayton Kershaw for so long now. It's become such a big storyline and narrative. We talked about, I think, in 2014. If your leader, if your best player out there can't get it done, does that have a trickle-down effect through the rest of the clubhouse? 
is all this losing that has gone on in the playoffs for such a good team about Clayton Kershaw and him not being able to perform consistently enough in big spots for this team, and it affects the rest of the guys where they lose confidence too. Because I looked over the numbers of the other four starters during from 2013 till now. The other main four starters that have gone for the Dodgers in the playoffs. Granke's ERA for the Dodgers, he stepped up. It was 2.36. He was great for them in the playoffs. Reuse now, it's 4.11. It's not great. It's still better than Kershaw's career playoff ERA. Kenta Maeda, 3.86. Rich Hill, 2.66. The other main four guys that have gone for them during this run of success for the Dodgers all pitched better in the playoffs than Clayton Kershaw. I don't imagine it will make your shoulders slump a little bit when they, hey, this is our guy, this is our horse. We have all the faith in the world in him, and during the regular season through 28 to 31 starts, the guy's amazing, and when it matters most, he's the one that ends up folding. Of course, I think it has a, a major mental effect on you, and to a point, it may get, and I think I said this maybe last year or two years ago, the only time Clayton Kershaw is going to win a, win a championship is when the rest of the team picks him up. He might turn into Peyton Manning. They have to overcome him. They play, they win championships despite the way that he performs in games as opposed to because of. Well, that was the new narrative. Well, this team doesn't rely on Clayton Kershaw as much. And I was thinking yeah. they had Granky next right. to him. They had the best one-two punch. That wasn't the issue. I don't think it was Kershaw feeling all the pressure because he was the only good pitcher. They, never, they had a great number two next to him. They had a one A next to him. Even when they didn't over the six year run where they've won these cha- where they've won the, the division championship and gone all deep into the postseason, they've had adequate enough talent. They've had adequate enough starters around them. Did they have a legit one two? That's to be debated on a year in, year out basis. They did but every single solitary season that they have lost in the playoffs, a major loss or two have fallen directly on the head of Clayton Kershaw and specifically in these elimination games where he was supposed to step up the most and he does not get it done. The reason you project the Dodgers to get to the World Series, and I saw a lot of people last night saying, including Dodger players, saying, you know what, we had to overcome a lot this season. Nobody thought we were going to get here, and that became a talking point. And I was thinking, you were favored to come out of the National League before the year started. Well, yeah, I think when I, you were 10 games under 500, yeah. but that's kind of on you because you right. didn't play well coming out of the gate. That's on you. You were talented enough to play better. You just didn't, whether it was World Series hangover or whatever. So injuries Kershaw, didn't help. Injuries didn't help. But, that, I mean, yes, it came down to a game 163 they had to win. And then we thought, well, maybe this is better. They're more battle-tested. It wasn't as easy to win the division this year. They've done it every which way, and they right. still come up with an L at some point in the playoffs. And last season, I think they had a better chance, obviously, to win that World Series, and they were even much closer, and they blew that. I thought you could they say it's you, Darvish. Series. You could say it's Kershaw in Game 5 blowing it twice when he had multiple leads in that game. It's easier to identify, I think, just a couple things that went wrong. There was so much that went wrong in this series against the Red Sox from the get-go. For a team that you thought, at least I thought, I didn't make, I didn't make an official prediction because Brian Suits made me on his show. But I said the Red Sox were going to win the series in six games because I just thought they were a better team. And now, obviously, once the series plays itself out and you see how things work out, the Dodgers could have very easily, to your point, they could have won both games in Boston had uh, they managed a little bit better. It should have at least been 2-2. Even after losing those games in Boston, they should have won game four. Right, right. 
Go yeah. on. Well, th- I mean, that's the game everybody's talking about. That's the game. You're yeah. up for nothing. Yeah. That was Russ Ortiz on the mound for the Giants against your Angels in 2002, taking the ball away too soon, even though I think it was more about who Dusty Baker. It's yeah, after I rewatched it, Tim Morrell shouldn't have been in that situation. No. But it was a lock that they were supposed to win that game, and they had uh, Rich Hill, who was cruising. And I'm just thinking to myself, if – if we're going to lose, I'm going to die on Dick Mountain. No. I'm going <laughs> to go with the guy it's, who's been your best it, and who was a gamer who it, tries to ch- yeah. Now there was the controversy between him and Dave Roberts and Roberts says I was going to the mound and I wasn't trying to take the ball, he gave it to me. But then Dave Roberts and I, we've watched this team all season long and I can't act, I'm not going to act like I watched 162. I don't remember many situations where Dave Roberts went to the mound and came back and didn't yank a pitcher off the mound. Yeah. Because it seemed as if Rich Hill said, well, once Dave was coming, I knew I was out. Dave says, once I came out of, came out of the dugout, I didn't actually signal to the bullpen that I was bringing anybody out. So I was just going to the mound to kind of check on him. So there's some lines of communication or yeah. something being crossed when it comes to that. Uh, loss in translation. Right. Bill but if Rich, Murray and Scarlett Johansson. And if Rich is telling me as a manager, and we can ask Skip about this because he's done it, obviously. If he's telling me, hey, watch me out there, just keep an eye on me, it doesn't really instill a lot of confidence in me as a manager when a, when a player is out there saying, hey, I might not have it or I may lose it at any point in time. So that's going to make me a little bit skittish, especially after you walk the leadoff batter or after you get an out, you walk a batter. That's going to make me a little – actually, it was a leadoff walk, then he struck out the next batter. That's the issue. If Dave Roberts said, and he said, quote, let's go hitter to hitter, that's what Rich yeah. Hill told him – well, that next guy, was he it? struck out on three pitches, right. and now you have a lefty coming up, and it's a good situation for Rich Hill. Right. So what were you looking for? What, Unless he That thought, should have been the sign to keep going. Right. I don't get it. <laughs> Unless he thought bringing in Scott Alexander, who has a, who's, is good for forcing ground balls, and he was trying to get himself into a double play, and he felt that Rich didn't have the repertoire or he liked the matchup, whatever the sense may have been, I wouldn't have done it. I know that. No. And Scott Alexander has not been the – now, he pitched pretty damn well, I'll say, in that extra inning game. Pretty much everybody did uh, uh, for them. I think, he got, I think he got two innings out of him in that 18-inning game, and he was fine. But you think in that situation that the lefty with the lefty up there, he will be able to um, get him out. I mean, he walked yeah. him on four pitches. Who's the lefty that's been on the mound that has already gotten these guys out, that's yeah. already proven it in this game? And you can say third time through the lineup and all yeah. this stuff, but he just had a strikeout. And Scott Alexander wasn't even on the NLCS roster. I can't believe Dave Roberts got away with saying, well, he's been doing it for us all year. Oh, but you left him off the NLCS roster? He had a 3.68 ERA this year, Scott Alexander. Yeah. That's not good. And I don't know what his splits are <laughs> against lefties. Like I said, unless they liked him in that, oh, particular, better, but... in that particular matchup against the left-handed batter, again, with a man on first thinking that he's going to be able to induce a ground ball. And again, I can't get into to Dave Roberts or Friedman or Zaidi or anybody else's head this is just me thinking what they're probably you thinking don't want to but in your and to, to agree the with you this week i will leave rich hill in there too because again he's a lefty facing another lefty you're faced with the exact same situation it doesn't change anything other than the fact that scott alexander's arm is fresh and how fresh is it if well, he's going to walk the guy on four pitches we aren't even talking about a four nothing game that he's held them scoreless he's held them to one, one hit hit this this isn't debatable this is obvious nobody else is doing this unless you're completely overthinking things or 
Uh, you which misheard I would or for. misinterpreted what Rich Hill was trying to tell you there. But after the game, Rich Hill did say, quote, I felt fine. Right. He just hit 91 and struck a guy out. How do you take him out in that situation? Now, the other guys should have been better. Scott Alexander shouldn't have thrown three, four straight balls. That's unbelievable. But they shouldn't have been put in that position. They, Rich Hill should still be out there. I... If I'm going to lose that game, it's going to be with a guy who's got a one-hitter going when when I've already seen other guys in the bullpen not show up. And because of the score the way that it was, I mean, he wasn't giving up a one-hitter with a one-nothing lead. Yeah, cushion. Yeah, cushion to play with at that point in time. You know what I mean? He could have pushed him further. Yes, and he should have. And he should have. What was he at, 92 pitches? 91, I believe, before when they took him out. Okay. I think it was at 91 pitches when they took him out. And if Dave Roberts already knew... That Pedro Baez and Julio Urias are not available, that makes it even worse. It does. Now, we didn't know until after the game, and that's also asinine. Calls bull. I have I'm no bull on idea. That. If he's doing that to cover his ass, that or, those two guys weren't available, Urias had also been very good in the playoffs for that. He's excellent, yeah. I mean, uh, his worst pitch was the one that uh, Chris Taylor made that diving crazy catch in Milwaukee. But other than that, he's been damn near unhittable. And we know how great Pedro Baez has been to this point. Uh, wh- I, what's the story on that? What are you well, saving them for? It doesn't make sense. Well, Pedro Baez threw fewer pitches than, than Jansen. Kenley Jansen did the night, the day before. So that doesn't make any sense to They're me. They're giving preferential treatment to Jansen and Kershaw. Who've been shaky. And Jansen had been very shaky since the heart palpitation. Yes. And he blew game two in the World Series last year. In the exact same situation. Has, with Rich Hill, who got taken out in the fourth in that game. Right. And Kaylee Jansen now has three blown saves in the World Series. Yeah. I, you want to talk about mental scars and things, that, and, and Kershaw having to get over hurdles. Now it's Jansen, too. I don't know what the numbers are telling you. When Kenley Jansen gives up all of these home runs toward the end of the regular season, he finds it a little bit, then he loses it a little bit. You bring him into a situation in Game 3 where he blows a one-run lead trying to get six outs. You bring him in the exact same situation in Game 4 trying to get six outs, something that, first of all, most closers are not comfortable doing. And he probably is trying to leave some in the tank because he knows he can't go all out because he has to face at least six batters you're putting him in the most vulnerable spot he's the most vulnerable he's he has been in his career because of the heart issue because of how shaky he's been in this most high leverage situation when you rather go with a guy like Pedro Baez who's been borderline unhittable that threw 26 pitches which is next to nothing the night before that does that's the that's the most egregious other than Hill, maybe even more so than Hill, to be honest with you, because it was so obvious and it happened just the day before in the yeah. exact same situation. I don't, That's the most egregious move for me. I don't mind him putting Jansen in in game three to try to go for six out save. I don't love it, but I don't hate that move. But I'm sure as hell not doing it in the very next day after what I saw because he hadn't given up a run yet in the playoffs. He did start to look much more like himself. He was hitting 96 more and more often. I just I, I want an explanation on Julio Urias, who had pitched, who had thrown eleven pitches in the World Series so far. Why would he not be available? Why? What you're babying him for? What? This is the reason you have him. This is the reason he was on the roster because he's coming off an injury. You already had used him. Like this is the World Series. This is the time when you need him most. You're saving him for the next World Series. What's going on? I. It's uh, yeah. It's it's hard to reconcile some of the moves they made in this series. They can always explain stuff away or with, try to. with their analytics. Yeah, 
they they can find a way to. But some of it was obviously gut decisions as well. And the problem was they were wrong on the analytics and they were wrong when they went to their gut. Right. <laughs> Both sides of the spectrum, the Dodgers just kept missing with. Yeah, and uh, you can criticize so much that they need to go in and reinvent the wheel and do things differently. And maybe there's something to that to a point, especially when you look at playoff baseball, which is more unique in the postseason than maybe any other sport. Just how the game kind of changes and everything is such a high leverage situation. You know, maybe the way they do things in the regular season analytically can work and get you to a certain point. But we saw this a little bit with A.J. Hinch and how unconventional he was anti-analytically in the World Series against the Dodgers. Yeah. We saw how the Red Sox, who were at the forefront along with the A's when it came to the money ball movement, so that no one's more analytically driven than them. But Alex Cora found ways to say, you know what, I'm going to be. They had David Price pretty much warming up in every single game. Yeah. Every single game he was warming up and was an option coming out of that bullpen. He had a sense of urgency. And he was always overly prepared. Right. Analytically, I'm pretty sure that didn't jive, but that he had the autonomy to be able to do that. Now, whether or not Dave Roberts has the autonomy to make certain decisions like that in games, I don't know. I have no idea if that's the case. You would hope so, because some of those things, just for someone who played baseball and played at the level that he did, it's puzzling that someone like Dave Roberts would make some of the moves that he made if he if he had full autonomy to make those decisions, or if he's just, is he just following what, here's what the script is, and here's what I'm, suppo- yeah. here's what I'm supposed to do in this situation. And, and if he's not making the moves, why is he there? If Correct. he's not having any say, and maybe it's to protect themselves and insulate themselves and shield themselves by having a front office like this with Dave Roberts, it's you never know exactly where to point the finger. You right. can't put all the blame on just one guy because there's this collaborative effort going on. And maybe, maybe that's by design. Yeah, the problem is, I mean, Dave Roberts publicly is the one that's going to fall on the sword every single time. Yeah. Now, And I love the way he handles stuff A lot of credit. Afterwards. And I think he handles it great. And he's, 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 he's di- diplomatic about everything. And he, he comes off like a statesman. Very, very much so. That's great. He had to be diplomatic answering a question from the president on Twitter. Yeah. By the way, and what he was, he was. He said, "Hey, the president has his opinion. It's That's one, one man's, man's opinion. opinion. That's one man's opinion. All right. Whatever you say." So, mind is, is weak. He's the good soldier going out there. I just wonder if he actually, how much power he actually has to make decisions. Uh, in terms of even in game, to be honest with you, because a lot of things just go against conventional baseball well, wisdom for what someone who actually played the game. We know the decision with Rich Hill has to be him. I doubt he talked to Friedman after he talked to Rich Hill and said, this is what he said to me. That had to be a decision that he ended up making. It was the wrong one. He said afterwards, I went with my gut there. I just what what did your gut just tell you when he threw three pitches? He had a three pitch uh, out. Right. I. I I don't understand how how you can explain that away. I don't understand what the rationale is there. I didn't, and I wish people would pepper him more with some of the details of what actually happened, because that was the critical moment of this series. That should should have been a two two series with Clayton Kershaw going on the mound in Game Five. Yes, it's Kershaw, but maybe he gets more confidence because all of a sudden it's not a must win situation, which is where he always usually struggles the most in the playoffs. Right. And by the way, this is no way to guarantee that they would have won that game. It's possible he could have blown up in the next inning. Who knows? But he, at that point in time, in that given moment, gave you a better chance to win that game or at least stay in that game in that particular inning than Scott Alexander or anybody else for the simple fact that he was rolling. He walked one guy and gave up a hit the entire time. Boston was favored going into this series. They won 108 games. I do think the AL was so much better is slightly overblown. 
because they also had three teams lose 100 games in the AL this season. They were beating up on some really bad teams, I think, to inflate their record. But they were so clutch with hits. This was a unique Boston team that looked like it was going to take. And last year, I I, I said it was the uh, unstoppable force versus the immovable object with the Astros and the Dodgers before the series started. I picked the Dodgers in seven. I was wrong. <laughs> they ended up losing it. But there were so there were two teams that looked like they were on a mission. It was just like the Giants and Kansas City Royals in 2014. This year, I don't know if there was as much Dodger magic going into it because of what happened going seven games with the Brewers right beforehand. But it felt like because of the way they won that game, that series against the Astros in five, right? The Red Sox. They, they, dominated, they dominated a them. team that's probably the second best team, really. Oh, yeah. They no just doubt. happen to be no doubt. in the AL. Yeah, and the, and the National League as a whole was mediocre, especially in comparison to the AL. I mean, you look at the teams with all those losses in the AL. Well, how many, how many of those losses came against teams who were just that much significantly better? Were those teams that bad, or were the Astros, Red Sox, and Yankees yeah. that good? We'll never know, but I, I, I thought this was further than a five-game series if it was better managed by the Dodgers and yeah. if guys just pitched a little bit more like themselves. If you were to maximize, again, the margin for error, doing everything right, the Dodgers could have done everything right and still lost this series. Yeah, so if, you can't afford to do things, to, to make boneheaded decisions cause, and shoot yourself from the foot even further. Yeah, and if we're talking about the playoffs and what pressure can do for guys and – I heard this, and we'll talk to the skipper about this too, but Rob Paca was talking about Alex Rodriguez saying maybe analytics don't work in the playoffs as well because it's so different what you're going to get out of each and every player because pressure affects them and you don't know if a guy's going to sink or swim in these moments and you're going off of regular season numbers. Pressure affects you too. I do think that's a factor. It's also... You look at analytics over the course of a 162-game season, you're not playing against top-quality you know, players every, each and every no. night either. So, yeah, you might hit a guy might hit 365 against lefties during the regular season. Okay, but eight of the 12 lefties he faces on a night-in-night-out basis are not going to be good as the three lefties yeah. he's facing out of this particular bullpen who's been one of the best in the entire league. And those are the things where you start taking numbers that are spread out over a longer period of time just don't work to the same effectiveness when it comes down to a condensed series with a bunch of guys who a are just better and b you're going to face more often yeah in a condensed period of time using numbers against the padres aren't going to help you against the red Sox. but i I, think that gets lost sometimes they also i mean they have every single number this guy against this batter in this situation they have everything at their disposal except what's in their heart and what a guy is feeling at the plate and knowing and i heard this from ned coletti it's a great line you want a slow pulse and a quick mind mm-hmm. in the playoffs. That's what you want. And it's hard to quantify those things yeah. in a very small sample size and go off of that and expect them to do the same thing. Because last year, remember how good the Dodgers bullpen was until the World Series? The same thing happened again. But the one thing they did know was Clayton Kershaw. That's the one guy you could say, we pretty, we're pretty sure what we're going to get from him in the playoffs. And they still win against that instinct because he's Clayton Kershaw, because he's a legendary pitcher, a living legend in the game today. But it's almost like they're chasing that moment and trying to give him that Dirk Nowinski redemption. 
who <laughs> didn't always play well in the playoffs, was up 2-0 against the uh, Miami Heat in 06. They lose that series. He comes back. He beats them in 2011. He plays great. That that's what it kind of reminds me of. Like they're chasing that moment for Clayton Kershaw to give him that greatness to where we can forget about some of this other stuff. But at what cost? How long were you going to keep putting him out there and laying, letting him stay out there when you know he doesn't have it early on? Yeah, I mean, and look, and, the, and even that Houston game and that game five last season when they got up big and he gave up the lead and they gave him another lead, I thought it was a good call to leave him in there and see if he can get him, get, hey, you got some, some momentum back. But once he walks the first guy and walks the second guy or whatever the sequencing was, at that point in time, you can't leave him in. Yeah. You can't have that much blind faith in a guy who, to your point, over the course of his career has blown up in every situation like this. When he starts flowing and when he's going well and he's going great, like he did in game one of the World Series last year, phenomenal. By all means, stick with yeah. it. The problem is once he hits adversity, he has shown time and time again it snowballs on him, and he can't get himself out of it. Mm-hmm. And he never has been able to in the playoffs. And before, even when he was cruising, the seventh inning comes. He's going through the third time around in the batting lineup, and then he starts to struggle a little bit. There's just how many times do you have to learn this lesson about Clayton Kershaw? How many times? And I, and I think, look, if they had – if they had – I don't want to say Madison Bumgarner because – He's been so ridiculously great. It's easy to say you plug him in, take Kershaw out. How many World Series rings do the Dodgers have? But give me Josh Beckett going on a streak or Cliff Lee or one of these guys. Just the Dodgers probably would have, would have won two World Series by now in the last six years, at least. So you it's have to, Clayton you Kershaw. Don't even have to duplicate your regular season numbers. Just have an ERA like 1.2 points higher. And you'll still be phenomenal. Yeah. The fact that it doubles, that you go from giving up a career, what, 2.2 yeah. ERA to going up to four. And at one, at one point, I think it was over five at a certain point in time up in the last couple of years. It's actually lower I mean, than when he started exactly. the playoffs this year. Right. But not, it went from 4.35 to 4.32. It's, it's not much. It's not, not so much. It's all being, being between somebody's ears. On top of the fact that his physical abilities are diminishing at this point, too, it's hard to see him being able to dig himself out of it. It's it's so, yeah, he's getting worse as a pitcher. Now you need him or you're trying to get him that win finally when he couldn't do it in his prime. But it's just so, it, it's sad in a way because he's easily the greatest regular season pitcher of, of the last 15 years of the modern age, whatever, since Pedro, since Roger Clemens, since Randy Johnson, all these guys. And you want that storybook ending for him, but it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. And if if eventually they do win and Clayton Kershaw contributes, hey, I saw Barry Zito contribute in 2012 somehow for the Giants when he was horrible for a couple seasons in the regular season and looked like he I was mean, done. And all of a sudden he stepped up. That all whole, of a sudden he stepped that up. That whole Oakland trio for their run struggled in the playoffs whenever they make it. They were all great. Now, they didn't have the the run of success and the longevity yeah. like Kershaw has had. And, injuries and their did that bats were those terrible, guys. too, for him in yeah. the playoffs. Right. And the damn Yankees. Right. Jeter. But, so, <laughs> hey, relay. That, that story, but for Clayton Kershaw has been like one of those choose-your-own-adventures and you choose to walk to, into the tunnel and the tunnel is actually a cliff and you just walk off yeah. the cliff every time. That was that's, the first book, The Cape of Time. Yeah, that's been, that's been Clayton Kershaw's career pretty much when the postseason starts. That's it's, what, it's and that's tragic, what the book man. is right now. It's, 
I, I want to root for Kershaw. I don't have any reason to root yeah, no against reason Clayton to, Kershaw. Well, you're a Giant fan, but I have no reason to dislike him. It would be nice for it to end so well for him. No, this is going to happen. He's going to be like the last guy on the bench somewhere. He's going to be like 42 years old and like just holding on the back end of somebody's bullpen. Somebody's going to be winning in the World Series in Game 7. They're going to be up 10 nothing, and they'll put Kershaw in there, and that'll be his swan song. That's kind of what happened for Pedro against the Yankees. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> in that Game 7, right. after Matt Damon, not Matt Damon, Johnny John Damon, Damon yeah. Matt Damon hit those was, two home runs. They were up uh, by Boston. so many runs, they let Pedro in. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he still gave up a couple. He did. After, and that was a, a year following the previous, you know, after he got blown up and Grady Little left him in too long right. and all of that and skip has talked about this by the way before we check out skip's going to join us in a second leaving it taking a guy out a batter too early then leaving him in a batter too late but even then in a situation like rich hill was in because even pedro was well over 100 pitches in that game uh when he blew well, yeah, that game against yeah. the yankees pedro noticeably was fatigued. he was fatigued yes you can't say that about rich hill he was fine and he said you blew away the previous batter on three straight pitches it just it's unjustifiable and, to be able to take him out regardless of what the book says at that point and maybe he shouldn't have said that he shouldn't have planted that I think he's seed in Dave now. Roberts. Oh, he must be. He thought he was doing something selfless. Yeah. But <laughs> Dave Roberts obviously took it a little bit too far. And honestly, I would. I mean, look, if a guy tells me that too, and I'm a manager, and someone tells me, hey, I might not have it, or I may be losing it, or watch out for me, then I would too. Now, why in your, it would creep into your mind to take him out at that point after he just blew a guy down, I mean, and he looked pretty dominant in doing it, I don't know. And there's a lefty coming up. <laughs> and it's a four-run lead. Like you said, they have some cushion there. I don't get uh, it. I, poor Dodgers fans. The first thing I thought of last night was 30 years, man, mm. 30 years. It's unbelievable that this franchise has not won a World Series in 30 years. It, it, what are the odds? Of that happening because they've had good teams, they've had superstars, they've had great pitchers, they've had great hitters. They had Manny Ramirez hit 500 in the playoffs for them in 08 and 09. Literally, he almost hit 500. I remember. Uh, and by the way, Manny Machado, what not he hit, four did, hits, did not four hit singles. 500. He had 227, I think, in the entire postseason for the Dodgers. All singles. He thought one of them was out. It hit the bottom been a of double. the dirt at the wall. That should have been a double, but he hot-dogged it coming out of the batter's box. Yeah. That could have taken him out of a scoring chance in an inning. I haven't seen many guys not be able to judge their home run balls or their not-so-much home run balls that badly. That poorly. Yeah. I mean, I've seen guys, it bounces off the top of the wall. The, cool. This seen hit it. the bottom, like yes. the wedge in between the dirt in the wall this had no shot <laughs> yeah he's i think he's gone i think manny's on his yeah. way out the door i i don't think that if there was no Corey seager okay yeah i i might pay him because he's only 26 years of age even with the baggage and what happens at bags with him stepping on guys feet Again. i probably would yeah. but they have Corey seager coming back and they still have justin turner he's a lot cheaper you not it's cheaper being seager you don't have to pay him 300 million dollars for a guy that doesn't hustle every single day isn't luke roy gonna be a free agent Jonathan, Jonathan Lucroy. Yeah, I would go get him. They need a catcher. Yeah. I know they have guys coming up, but I don't know if they're ready yet. And they were terrible in the playoffs. Obviously, I Grandall. I would be shocked if Grandall was back next year. Oh, God. I, I don't think you can. I And why did they put him in instead of Matt Kemp in that situation? I, yeah, that was another big I, question that people were, were banting why? around, too, in that pinch hit situation. Why didn't Kemp just get more bats in general in this series? He had a home run in game one. Yeah. What the hell are we doing? Oh. He's one of, he, was the, he was an all-star this year. I know he tailed off the back end of the season, but at the very least, he was one of the few guys in the lineups that actually hit both righties and lefties solidly. 
Him and JT, both. The common denominator for the Dodgers in the playoffs since 2013 has been poor managing. It started with Donnie Baseball. Forget it, Donnie. You're out of your own. I thought they should have fired him after 2013. I definitely thought they should have fired him when Joe Madden became available in 2016 and Friedman and Zaidi came over. They didn't want to pull the trigger and blow out, you know, the a guy who hadn't even managed a game for them yet. But and Joe Madden has also had his issues at times sure in the playoffs. Has. Sure has. He's gotten away with it. Alex no. Cora got away with some stuff in this series. No. He made some stupid moves. But common denominators, bad managing, bad Kershaw. You can't win if <laughs> not when you're facing a team that's already this good. Oh well, yeah. It's the playoffs. Yeah. And, and the teams they lose to, like St. Louis, they get the big hits. They have well, I mean, that's the big the, clutch plays. And, uh, the Astros. And that can cover up a lot of mistakes either managerially or in the field. Again, that yeah. I mean, because again, even Benatendi lost the ball on game five and got and had uh, David Freeze guy to triple. But what happened? It was a one out triple. Couldn't get him home. That was the, that has been an issue for this Dodger team, not only in the playoffs but just in the entire season, yeah. unless they were hitting home run balls. And so that, on top of the managerial issues, is the biggest reason why they didn't win. If they had better clutch hitting, maybe some of this stuff gets covered up, and they're able to win some of these games seven to five, or able to win a game nine to eight. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, at times in the playoffs last year, they were able to do. Yeah. They were able to win a shootout or two last year in the playoffs. They just they just didn't didn't have that sort of magic like they did last year this year. They and almost won that game five still. Yeah, <laughs> even with the poor pitching, there yes. was a back and forth. It was one of the greatest games of ever. It was. It was. Uh, so we have the skip coming on in the next segment. He'll uh, get into the nitty gritty, the details of all the issues, the managerial issues. He can definitely speak to yeah. those that Dave Roberts had. Talk about the future of the club. Clayton Kershaw, what's next for him? Does he opt into that contract with the Dodgers, or does he opt out and seek something a little bit longer? If I'm the Dodgers, I would want him to opt out. Of course I, you would. D- no. Make it easy on us. No. Because it's a bad PR hit if you just let him go or negotiations fall apart. It's Clayton Kershaw, even with the playoff stuff. He's the new Sandy Koufax. I understand it. It would be a blessing in disguise if he just if he just opted out. I think if and it was, left. If it was, I, it's harsh. It's hard to say, but it's a tough business. Yeah, and if if you wanted to bring him back, he'd have to take a significant pay cut. As of now, he's taking he's making what thirty five. He's slated to make thirty five million next year and thirty six the year after that. If he's asking for me for any more than twenty a year, I gotta let him walk. He needs to take the ego cut too. Yes. If he was that upset as Bill Plunkett said he was that he didn't get the start in game one right. in the playoffs. I have I have an issue with that. Mm-hmm. If he still thinks he's the guy when Walker Bueller's there, and Be I'd the rather guy. have Rich Hill ahead of him in the playoffs, I'd rather have Ryu ahead of him if it's a home game. I damn near want to have Maeda in there. He hasn't even started in the last two postseasons. That's the problem. If you have to baby Kershaw and handle him with kid gloves because he's Clayton Kershaw in name only in the playoffs, I don't want a guy like that on my team. And that's an honest conversation the front office has to be able to have with him the, over these next three days. Um, it's like, look, it sucks that it's come to this point. It what? does. But it's, it's the reality of it. I mean, yeah, it's the guy that you love, and the Dodger fans revere, and they dedicate it. It's Kershaw Day. We all, I mean, he's a, one of the most amazing pitchers between May and, you know, September, or May and October, you know? You got his best years, and it wasn't enough, because... He didn't show up in right. the biggest moments enough. Right. So if you're the Dodgers, why should you feel any sort of obligation to like, okay, yeah, he gave it. You say he gave his best. And during the regular season, sure he did. But when we needed him the most, the biggest reason why he was making the money he was making was to come through in those biggest moments. That's why he's there. That's why he's an ace. And literally, 
every single solitary postseason, there has been at least two starts where he has not been able to get it done for you. Yeah. What are you supposed to do with that? We point talked in time? about it before this postseason. We went through every single game log that Kershaw had, had in the postseason, and you notice a trend that he hasn't put back back to back great lights out games. Uh, since 2013. No, I say he needs a run. He has yet to have anything close to a postseason run. You mentioned Josh Beckett or your Kurt Schilling, who he was a Mr. October when it came to pitchers, having just dominant runs throughout the postseason. If the Dodgers lose, but he did everything he could, it's like, okay, I can't blame him for that. He did everything, but yeah. it's always it always falls on his shoulders. The reason the Dodgers are projected to win the World Series and be in the mix every year is based off of what he does in the regular season. So if he doesn't give you that in the playoffs, then you're not the same team. Bingo. All right. Let's, uh, let's see what the skip has to say. Kevin Kennedy at Kevin Kennedy MOB is where you can find him on Twitter. He's going to jump on and talk about the World Series tragedy it was for Dodger fans. Don't go anywhere. Every man at some point in his life is going to lose a battle. FNA, Cotton, FNA. Back here on the FNA podcast, it is Kevin Figures and Adam Oslin. Well, the Dodgers won one battle. Problem is, they had to win three more to get a championship for the first time in 30 years. Could not get it done against the Boston Red Sox. And Adam, we have a special guest online, friend of the show, one of the best in the business, joining us to talk about the World Series. Yeah, it's time to bring in a manager with a sense of urgency who's doubling as a grief counselor today after the Dodgers continue their Buffalo Bills imitation. So Saturday night, when every pitcher after Rich Hill got lit up by the Sox, we lit up the sky by turning on the, not the bat signal, but the stash signal. And our hero (laughs) appeared. It's the skipper, Kevin Kennedy, the real Mr. Baseball. Forget Tom Selleck and his rumored press-on mustache. He was just a fraud. We've got the real thing here, and ain't nothing like him. Yes, some call him the high priest of baseball, but we prefer Archangel because he looks out for the fans so much over the years. You hear him during the season on the call on Dodger Games on AM570 LA Sports. You also hear him on Sirius XM Radio. It's Kevin Kennedy, the skipper who always knew when to hold him and when to fold him. Not only do I want him managing my baseball team, I want him managing my life. Skipper, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Adam, Kev, good to talk to you again. I appreciate the open, as always. I'll tell you a quick hit on Tom Selleck, by the way. Oh, he could, he could hit. He came into Texas when I was managing there back in 93. He had a celebrity uh, home run hitting contest. He flew in, and he had a, he's the only one that hit home run, legit. Wow, <laughs> so, impressive! Yeah, he, I guess yeah, that... he played. What uh, he stadium? Played in high school, so Texas, the old. Uh, let's see, where were we? Old Texas Stadium. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, yeah. He hit one uh, down the right field line. He had some pop. Left-handed hitter, man. Yeah, he's a uh, uh, nice guy. Loves baseball. Maybe the stash was real. Gave yeah. him a source yeah. of power. I think yeah. he's from Detroit originally, I believe. So that's why he wore that uh, Detroit hat all the time in one of those shows. So I don't know if he's a Tigers fan or not. But Cecil Fielder anyway. yeah, impersonation. There you go. <laughs> that was him. funny. You mentioned his name, though. I thought of that right away. <laughs> Skipper, I know you're too classy to destroy uh, Dave Roberts, as so many have. But I do have to ask you about the definitive point of this series when he took out Rich Hill. Rich Hill had told him before the seventh, keep an eye on me. I'll give you everything I have. Let's go hitter to hitter. Just keep an eye on me. How would you interpret that? And did Dave Roberts interpret it correctly? You know, before I answer that, let me explain what I'm just going to tell you what I did with, I'm going to take Roger Clemens because I got really close to Roger when I managed him in Boston, 95, 96. 
And I did it with all my starters, but especially Roger, because he was getting a little bit older. And even though his stuff was still fantastic, uh, about the sixth inning, I, don't, I mean, five innings, no problem in those days, of course. Him throwing 135 pitches, no problem in those days at all. Uh, there was a game he threw 151 for me, struck out 20 in Detroit in 96. Today, I don't know if a guy would be allowed to throw that many pitches to, to tie that record. But nonetheless, um, what the conversation is like, usually the manager goes to the player first and says, how you doing? And I, I would always do that with Rocket in about the fifth inning, sixth inning. So, uh, how you feeling? I mean, he put five zeros up there. He's throwing great. But, you know, you always want to check in on him. Did the same thing with Nolan Ryan. And granted, Nolan was older. He was in his 40s you know, when I had Nolan in 93. So he was a different story. He wasn't going to complete any games. But that conversation, for me, was always initiated by me and the pitching coach. But I always liked to do it myself because I was a catcher, and I feel like you know I could I had a better read or just as good a read on you know what the hit how the hitters re- reacted to the stuff, and, and I could tell just by knowing the body language how he was throwing. I could see the arm angle if it was the same, et cetera. So Roger would say sometimes, "Hey Skip, who do we have behind me today?" And I'd say, "Well." Um, so and so is is behind you, and and uh, this our, our main guy is gone. Our our setup guy is not not can't pitch today. And it, he said, "Let me go out back out there. Let me go out there. I can give you I can give you at least uh, this inning for sure. I can give you. I got about twenty pitches in me for sure. So things like that. That was a conversation we had. I'm just giving people an example of you know how it works sometimes in, in the dugout. Alex Cora may do it a different way, but those conversations go on a lot. I never really had a pitcher have to come up to me. In fact, I can't remember a pitcher coming up to me and saying, hey, better watch me, uh, this thing, because that's a red alert to me. If a pitcher came up to me, if Roger came up to me, for example, and said, better watch me this inning, then I'm getting guys up behind him as soon as he goes out to the mound. That's what I'm doing. So times when he would say to me, I'm, I'm, I, got, I got some in the tank left. I can empty it this inning for you. So I would get guys up, you know, depending on the batting order that we're facing that night. I would get, and sometimes it might be a lefty or a righty. If we're in a one-run game or something like that, I might get two guys up, a lefty and a righty for the lineup we're facing that night and just have guys ready. I always wanted to be one too soon rather than one too late. You know, and I see in the, even in this World Series, I mean, Alex Cora got up Barnes too late uh, in the game that Eduardo Rodriguez threw, and that's why he f- ended up facing Puig. And, and, and you know, Cora kind of took the hit later and said, the next day, well, I asked too much of him. But in reality, when watching the, the camera had his sight on, on Alex Cora, he didn't have Barnes ready in that inning for Justin Turner. There's no way that Justin Turner should have faced Rodriguez for the third time. He gave them more than enough to get into that inning. So Alex was a first-year manager. So even Alex, he made some mistakes. I know everything worked out for them. He shouldn't have pitched he, a Puig in game three. No, no. Oh, absolutely not. No, that's what I'm saying. I'm going back three batters before that. He shouldn't have pitched to Turner, let alone Puig. <laughs> I mean, I mean um, once he got Bellinger out, and, of course, the, the th- throwing error, he's got to come out of the game and try to keep the game right there at one run. But even before that inning, to me, um, he's, he's not he's not facing. I'm not letting him face Justin Turner a third time. Justin was already on twice, so that was a mistake for Cora too. So Dave Roberts, yeah, he made some mistakes, and it's not a second guess from my vantage point. It's a first guess, um, and so. But when a pitcher comes up to you like Rich did, no matter what he said, it is a red alert. So I got I got to back Dave on that one.
My my question uh, though is he struck out Nunez on three pitches and there's a lefty yeah. coming up. Is yeah, the... I wouldn't be going out there. No, I, I okay. don't know why he went out to the mound in that situation because obviously Rich's stuff they weren't touching. I mean, throwing a one hitter. The first sign for me was that he walked the first batter, but then he got Nunez, so I'm fine because of the four run lead. If it's a one run lead, maybe I bring a different lefty in, or at least I go out there and talk to him and say, "Hey, are you are you okay? I mean, you got you walked the first guy." You got Nunez, the righty, but now we got these lefties, and I'd rather have you than anybody else right now. You're the most effective. You're throwing strikes. We know Alexander's got the great sinker, but he can also walk a lot of guys. He walked a lot of guys in the bullpen in Kansas City last year. Well, and with the Dodgers this season, Scott Alexander, he had an ERA of almost three and a half. And after the game, Dave Roberts says, well, he's been doing it for us all season in those situations. He wasn't on the NLCS roster. How good could no, he, he have wasn't. been? No, he wasn't. No, I, I listen, I and I I totally understand and I agree. You know, I've I've tweeted a few people back last night and trying to be constructive with what what I'm saying, but the reality of it is that was a botched uh, inning. Uh, I mean, for sure. I mean, it just was. That inning, once you get the four-run lead, you got the momentum on your side. All hands have to be ready to, to finish that game off. You, and I've said this, you guys know this, how many times? Is it a million now? Uh, the final nine outs are the toughest to get in baseball, and they still are for a manager. Any more to manage those final nine outs. Right. Clarity as far as the decision later. After you've given up the lead, or it's four to three at that point in time, you go to the bullpen and you bring in Kenley Jansen in the same situation he was in the previous night where he gave up the home run and got you into that marathon 18-inning game that they ended up winning. Does the decision not to pitch Pedro Baez in the eighth inning and saving Kenley Jansen, who was probably trying to hold some in the tank and not go all out, knowing he had to get six outs instead of three, you don't use Pedro Baez, who threw 26 pitches the previous night, to Kenley's 32. Many people believe that was a puzzling decision as well. What was your outlook on the decision later in that game to go to Kenley Jansen in the eighth for the second consecutive night as opposed to giving the ball to Pedro Baez? Yeah, I, I thought having seen them, them seeing him the, the night before and trying to get those six outs and giving up, you know, giving it up the home run um, to, to Jackie Bradley Jr., uh, they'd seen him, they'd studied him. And, and remember, uh, Tim Hires is over there as the hitting coach, and he has a read on all these Dodger pitches. He, he was the Dodgers assistant hitting coach. Not only did he he tell his own pitchers how to pitch the Dodger batters, he also told his batters, exactly what each and every guy's tendency was to, and you can look at the numbers and say, well, Kenley throws this cutter 87% of the time. He throws the two seamer, you know, 16% of the time, whatever. But he can tell you, you know, really in depth when you've coached, you know, with the Dodgers, like he has, that's an advantage for the, for the Red Sox right there to know, Hey, he, he's, he's going to do this to left-handed hitters more so than right-handed hitters, et cetera. So even Jackie Bradley Jr. said, I was looking for a cutter. A backdoor cutter. I mean, that's what he and that's what he got. And a cutter ran over the heart of the plate. He said, "I was sitting cutter." I know he throws a two seamer, but I was sitting cutter. That was the night before. So, you know, um, it's it's pretty apparent what he's going to throw. And the cutter was getting better in September. You know, after he got his medication situation settled a little bit, he wasn't lights out though. We know that he gave up a lot of home runs in that in that situation. So he just hasn't quite been the same guy the second half of the year. So to ask six outs of him when Baez has turned his whole career around, especially this second half, and has been lights out, and because largely because better command of his fastball that he throws 98 on, but also 
The changeup is such a vital pitch. You guys know I've talked about this for years. You've got to have a changeup. The Dodgers back in our day, back in the 80s, taught fastball, changeup, fastball, changeup. Pedro Martinez learned a fastball and a changeup before he threw a curveball back when we had him, when I had him. Ramon Martinez was the same. John Wetland, those guys were all the same. It's a devastating pitch, and that's why David Price was so effective yesterday and, and this whole postseason with it because he starts throwing more changeups, even on the first pitch, to get you off the fastball. So that's why Baez was effective. When they're sitting fastball two and one, he had the confidence to throw a two and one changeup for a strike. Not not the, the throwaway pitch, he was throwing it for a strike. And he was mixing an occasional slider, but the changeup command really has made Baez what he is today, and, and he's got confidence in it. So I was surprised on back-to-back days that Kenley was in there in the eighth inning with a one-run lead. And I know what Dave Roberts is thinking, and I get it. My Our season's on the line here. We've got to have this game. Um, you know, we've got to even it up here. But it wasn't the last game. You know, the one before it wasn't. But, you know, if you win it, the day before, it's, you know, uh, you go get, what, 2-2? Two, two? That, that, it would have been 2-2 two, two if they won last night, of course. but Or, no, 3-2 to two. And going back to Fenway. But I just think back-to-back days, Torn Kenley, trying to get six outs out of him, I just I didn't quite understand it myself. It's the skipper Kevin Kennedy breaking down the World Series for us here on the FNA podcast. There's been a lot of talk of analytics now, of course, with the Dodgers. They lean that way with the sabermetrics, with Farhan Zaidi, with Andrew Friedman. But I thought there was a lot of things that weren't very analytical in this series, like starting Hunjun Ryu on the road in game two, where he's not very good on the road and has proven that time and time again, he's much better at home. And then I heard something interesting from Alex Rodriguez, skipper, and he kind of leans towards the old school way of thinking. And I want to know what you think of this philosophy, because it's such a small sample size in the postseason and pressure changes the way guys perform in the postseason are analytics analytics worthy uh, of looking towards in these situations in the postseason when maybe some of the stuff from the regular season doesn't translate over? Well, let me, let me even take it deeper. And now we're really getting out there. You know, those analytics are all fine and good, but those, do those analytics tell you what time of year it is, what the weather's like when those numbers are there? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're more of a, a comprised algorithm from across a period of time is what they are. They don't specify in October how cold it is in Fenway Park. For example, Ryan Matson says he couldn't get a grip. That changes things, especially on a secondary pitch, which is his changeup, a field pitch. I imagine Boston. I can tell you what it's like in April. It's it's cold. You can get snowed out the first week like, like we did when I was there. And then when it gets nice in the spring and starts getting the summer, there can be some nice days. The wind can blow in from right field. You can, the lefties can crush a ball 380 feet, and the ball be be knocked down. It's 380 feet to right field to hit it out. So lefties are lefties. lefties we taught them to hit the monster in left center. That's why Mo Vaughn won the MVP. He went the other way a lot. So it's all fine and good. The numbers are historical information. That's what I think. I think about analytics. They're great backup information, but to me, they don't dictate what the lineup is that night based on historical information. I think you've got to use your eyes. You got to see what the weather is like. Who's feeling good? How many days have you used them? Um, the hitters. How are they feeling? 
all these things come into play. How's his family? Is he worried about something? Is everything all right? Guys go through things like we all do. They're human beings. They're not just robots. When you come to the stadium, they're going to do this. And your bullpen guy's going to do this every day because he did it the last three days. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. It's good information. I'm not against it. I was, listen, I grew up a math major. I got an accounting degree for credit. I wanted to be a statistician for the Dodgers. I told my mom when I was 10 years old. If I don't make it to the big leagues, Mom, I want to be the statistician for the Dodgers. That's the honest to God true story as I, as I sit here. Well, you always score games too, right, Skipper? Right. Always. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I score games. Rick and I both do when we work together. We score games, and I score every pitch and every sequence. That's why I talk about sequencing a lot. It's so important. That's everything. You know, Freeze hits a home run yesterday. And actually, I was I was driving home from somewhere, and I got home just after the first. So I listened to the top half of the first inning. I heard the two-run home run. I got out of my car, and as soon as I got in my house, it was already 2-1. to one. I didn't know what the pitch was until about two innings later when they re-showed it, and I saw, oh, he ambushed him on a first-pitch fastball. That's key because David Price throws a lot of first-pitch change-ups. So that's what he went to after that. He, they weren't going to ambush him again. You didn't know what he was going to throw. So. That's what they do to Kershaw. They ambush the fastball. That's what Pierce did. So those things really come into play. That's why I score every pitch in every game, and I look back and I say, okay, in the first inning, you know, Kershaw did this. He, he was powering the fastball. He hadn't used the curveball yet until the eighth batter or whatever. He's got to throw more curveballs, I think, because they're on the fastball. You got to, they got, you got to get them off the fastball, you know, things like that. That's why I always talk about sequencing because that, that, that matters – these aren't just batters that stay, sit up there and go, okay, today I'm just going to hit. doesn't matter who the pitcher is. I'm, I'm hot today. No, it's about pitch sequencing. You can get anybody out if you've got, number one, good stuff, great command, and you know how to pitch. Pitch sequencing. I mean, what did Joe Kelly do? What did Evaldi do when they came in in the seventh and eighth inning? First pitch was a curveball to Max Muncy, not a, not a fastball. The guy crushes first pitch fastballs. So they they showed the curveball, and the reason they were effective now is they could throw it for strikes. And that's the big difference. Not only that they throw 100 miles an hour, but they threw it for strikes. And so now in the hitter, the hitter you're going, "Uh uh-oh, he might throw me another one here. It just gets you a little edge. You're not quite sure. And so now you have to guess until you get two strikes. All right, I got to cheat on the fast. I know he's throwing me a fastball. That's why you saw some funny swings on both sides. Because guys were looking for certain pitches. Fans may not know that. But that's why pitch sequencing is, is the whole key to everything. The score, the inning, the pitcher, and pitch sequencing, that all dictates you know how you call a game and how you run a game. Where were you on that one, John Smoltz? <laughs> well, Skip, because you're talking about the pitch sequencing, and one of the great criticisms of this Dodger lineup all season long is how defenses shift towards them you know when it comes to guys like Bellinger when everybody's on the right side of the infield and Muncie and all those guys and the the criticism of them not being able to hit to the opposite field and it makes the pitcher's job a little bit easier because they just know those guys have no or they're basically aren't a threat to go the opposite way and people are talking about well this is something they need to work on in spring training I don't get I mean you tell me Skip I'm pretty sure this these are things they're obviously aware of they do work on these sorts of things in the offseason. Is it just that difficult for some of these players because this is the way they've played their entire career and it's just one of those tough-to-teach-an-old-dog-new-tricks type of situation? Is that is that what we're witnessing? Because it seems pretty ridiculous if a guy knows exactly what his flaw is that he doesn't just go out there and try to work at it day in and day out and improve so they stop shifting on him. 
Well, that's why, let's just take Chase Utley, for example. When the Dodgers got Chase Utley in Philadelphia, because especially the ball jumps in right field in Philadelphia, Citizens Bank ballpark, Utley was really a pull hitter. He'd go to left field once in a while, but he could hit pull for power. When he came to L.A., he was a guy, when he saw the shift, you saw him stay inside, just take the base hit. He knew he, knew he was getting older, and he wasn't going to hit a ton of home runs. He had some the first year, and, you know, as a couple of years went by, he knew his value was getting on base and getting base hits. So he completely beat the shift. So those shifts that the, that the teams were doing against Utley were based on old information. That's why I say they're historical. So if a guy makes an adjustment, you can make an adjustment in game. I don't know if you saw my tweet last night, but Mookie Betts opened his stance up on the third pitch. That's right. The yeah. third at bat. And, and, and he, why? Because he was getting beat inside. He's a diver. A diver means your your stride is toward home plate. If you have a straight up stance and your first stride, you stride toward home plate, you tend to block your hips off. I know that because I did it. I was a close stance hitter, and my stride was was not toward the pitcher, but it was toward you know second base a little bit. And when people used to tell me and tell hitters to this day, just start toward the pitcher, change your stride. You can't do that. You have to you have to change your setup initially. So when you open, that's why the open stance is so popular today, because those guys are divers. So now when you open your stance, now you don't have to worry about what your front where front foot goes. You just stride your normal stride, and it becomes perpendicular to the pitcher. So now you can cover the inside corner and the outside corner. And so Mookie, it was slight, but it was very apparent to me. In fact, I was texting Dave Assay. Before, before the, as soon as he got in the box, I was texting Vasse and I said, he's opened his stance. He's, he's going to be he's looking inside. And Dex, Dave can attest to that. And of course, three pitches later, he homered. Now, I didn't know he was going to homer and all that, but I knew what he was doing. That's why as a catcher, you're always looking at the feet to see if guys are adjusting. Cal Ripken Jr., when we were managing, uh, managing against Cal, he would change within pitches his feet. And you didn't know what to throw him because he was adjusting not only his hands and his setup, but his feet, Rod Carew, the great Rod Carew, Hall of Famer. People who don't know that name, Google him. Phenomenal hitter. Great guy. Great angel. Would Come change, on. Would change things all the time. And, and so these guys really knew because, you know, Pete Rose, people can say what they want about Pete Rose, but he could see that. He could see what hole was open. And they took advantage of it. So, you know, there were times, I really believe, the last couple of years that guys like Peterson and Bellinger have tried to make some adjustments on that. Bellinger will do it with two strikes. And when a team keeps strike, that's why you see with two strikes, teams changing their shift because they're starting to get on to, oh, this guy now is a little bit different than last year. When he has a hole over there now with two strikes, he'll cut his swing down. Even that last swing uh, of the, uh, that he had the other night to end the game, when the Red Sox came back and made it three games to one, it was a 3-2 fastball. Bellinger had a real short swing. You didn't see him finish it. You didn't see his real hip hip turn because he was trying to get a base hit to get on base and go the other way. So he popped out to left field, but that was by intent. Everybody goes, that was a terrible swing. He wasn't ready. wasn't that. He was trying to get on base. So if you have that approach, the more you do that, Kev and, and Adam, yeah, you can do it. You can If you work on it, you can do it. But – you don't see many, many teams around Major League Baseball doing it because if guys think if they hit 20 home runs and hit 220 and knock in 40 runs, that they're going to get paid millions and millions of dollars. I'm convinced that's the reason mm. the guys won't change. Skipper, because you have the experience dealing with a legend on the mound, there was some frustration I saw from fans that 
Clayton Kershaw had a longer leash than any of the other Dodgers starting pitchers who have been better, quite frankly, than he has in the playoffs. How dicey is a situation like that as a manager? And assuming Kershaw comes back with the Dodgers, it sounds like that's more likely than not. But is he fixable with the way he pitches now and how he's performed in the playoffs over the years? Is there a way to get a better Clayton Kershaw in the postseason somehow? Well, you know, Clayton's been hurt four out of the last five years with the back or muscle problems, whatever. Um, And I myself have back issues just from catching, you know, and I I know you can't do much and it does change things. And I've known pitchers that have had back issues and it changes what what they throw. It's a lot of effort to throw a curveball. Oh, Hershazer has told me that. It's a hard pitch to throw. There's a lot more strain on him than just throwing a fastball. And you don't see Clayton throw as many curveballs as he once did. Um, and you don't see the devastating slider as much, the depth of it. You see a lot more cutters. And now when you look at the stats, what, whatever, if you follow Brooks Baseball or whatever stat place you go to that, that, that counts every pitch and all that, and whoever inputs it doesn't know, sometimes they don't know the difference between a cutter and a slider. Kershaw's slider is what made him what he's become. When he, when he developed that slider, when he didn't have it as a youngster and he had a fastball curve, he didn't have a slider. When he developed that pitch, he became a superstar. Since his back injury from last year, not this year, last year, I haven't seen that same devastating slider as often. I used to see it in any count. Hitters knew they couldn't hit it. They, just, they saw it. Um, they couldn't read the spin on it. It looked like a fastball to them, and boom, it had depth. Down and in at your back foot if you're a right-hander. Un, unhittable pitch. You just can't. And you you don't have enough time to, to to check your swing and stop because it just looks hey it's a fastball I can hit. When you throw a cutter, you can read that pitch all the way. If you hit your spot in or you backdoor it away and fool a hitter, yeah, you'll get some strikes on that. It can be an effective pitch. It worked for David Price. It worked for Clayton, but that pitch doesn't have any depth to it. So if it's a mistake cutter out over the plate, like Kenley Jansen threw, for example, it's a flat pitch. That's on the same plane as your bat. That's why it didn't fool Bradley Jr. and he homered the other night. But when you have the slider, that's why when you see Kenley pitch, I hate to get off Kershaw, I'll get back to him, but when you see Kenley pitch, that's why once in a while when the Dodgers catchers, he shakes off, he shakes off, and then he finally calls him out. I know when he does that, he's going to throw a slider because he's had that same pattern. And I, if I were telling on the other team, if I were a hitting coach, I'd say, okay, when he does that, guys, you could be ready for the slider. But you see these hitters aren't ready for it, and they get fooled, and they – Swing way too early, and he's got a good slider. So getting back to Clayton, that's the difference Difference in Clayton right now. It's not the velocity. That's part of it, that he, that he doesn't throw 94 anymore, or as much, 94, 95. I think he hit 93 once yesterday, but he's averaged about 90. That's a big difference when, you, when you're down five miles, yes. So he's added a cutter to try to you know help himself. But I don't understand, and maybe he can only say it. I don't know if it bothers him to throw the slider. I don't know if he if it's because he's had back issues. I'm not. I'm just throwing it out there, and I'm not. I would never say somebody's hurt, or that's why he's not doing it. Because I've been asked him, and I haven't heard anybody talk about it. But I can see it as a catcher. And I heard Lou Merloni yesterday, the Red Sox. One of their uh, analysts, he was talking about it, what I just told you guys. He said I only, he only saw two in the first game. He said he only threw two good sliders, and one I think was to Mookie Betts. I think he struck him out, and one was to, I can't remember, the other guy. And when I, I actually scored the game from home because I wanted to see what he was going to throw in, in that first game. And he only threw two, two really – he threw a few sliders, but only two really devastating ones. 
So yesterday I was, you know, curious to see how many sliders he would throw. He threw some cutters. He threw some okay sliders, um, but they weren't the same. You know, Betts was looking for one in that in that bat that he homered. You know, he was looking for a pitch in, and boy, it was subtle his open stance that he opened, and, and he may not even admit it, but he he was different. There's no doubt. I saw it right away. So, I, and I only saw it not because I'm a genius. I don't mean it that way, but. As a catcher, again, uh, you know, you watch the feet of a hitter every time he gets in to see if he's further away from the plate, if he's crowding the plate, trying to take a pitch away from me, trying to take the outside corner away, this at bat, whatever. But when he opened his stance, because I know he's a diver with the front foot, I knew what he was doing. He didn't want to get jammed again because that's why he was popping up a lot and hitting those fly balls. This time he got some backspin and hit the ball out. As far as the leash, I, I was surprised he was out there still myself as, as long as he was well, i think i don't know i mean i hate to say this i don't know if part of it was it's maybe his last start and dave was just giving him a little bit more and now it's three to one and then jd martinez it's one i i don't know i i had a couple of people that actually work for the dodgers that text me and i won't say names that were surprised they said what they asked me they said why is he still in the game and i said all i could say was question mark i don't know yeah. mm. Well, Skip, before we move forward and talk about what the Do- improvements the Dodgers can make or what they can do going into the offseason, just another wrap-up on the series itself yeah. because neither team played perfect. I mean, look, the Red Sox, this is a sweep. If Ian Kinsler handles that ball at second base in, in the ninth it inning, is. you know, out there, yeah. so, I mean, they, you find a way to wrap it up. And who was it? Was and it you Bennett's- saw Brock Holt handle the same ball yesterday, not the last out, but you yeah. saw him handle a ball very similar, almost exactly the one Kinsler did. He set his yeah. feet and he into a perfect strike. If Kinsler yeah. does that, you're right. It's right. a sweep. Benintendi lost the ball the other day. I mean, you look at it. Dave Roberts said after the game, the better team won the series. So as much nitpicking as we do in this situation, and rightfully so, and the Dodgers were right there in pretty much all of these games. Do you agree with Dave's contention that the team that had the best record in the regular season in the best league, the American League, which had three teams, went over 100 games, just had the better team regardless of what the Dodgers did? I actually picked the Dodgers in six games. I thought they were going to win before the series started. I mean, you almost have to win one in, in Fenway, but even though I said, all right, they're capable of sweeping because the Red Sox I knew Sale wasn't right, 100%, and I knew he probably couldn't go deep. And I knew Price was pitching better, and I didn't expect him not to pitch the way he was. I, I, I thought he, he knew he found something. He knew what he, and he changed where he was on the mound a little bit, and, and he started throwing his change up. So he found it. He got the confidence against Houston. I thought he'd carry it into the postseason. I, I did. Um, but, you know, I thought they'd get to Porcello. I really did. I thought they'd knock him around a little bit. And I thought, you know, if Evaldi started, you know, he was going to be tough because he gained a lot of confidence with his stuff, throwing 102, and and he really had command of his curveball. But I thought the Dodgers matched up as far as the starters went. Um, and, you know, the bullpen this year was better than advertised. I don't think got enough credit. I was just baffled at some of the moves, like Alex Wood coming in. You know, he, he's given up three home runs in the postseason to lefties. Yeah, why was he on the roster to begin with? Everyone was curious about that. And he's been ineffective as a reliever for a long period of time to this point. Yeah, well, that's what got me. When, when Nunez, you know, I know, you, you, you know, Nunez is on the bench. And, yeah, he can be a wild swinger sometime. And, and, but Alex gave up a home run to Freeman. He gave up one, who was it, to Travis Shaw, right? Yeah, I believe it was. It was, yeah. In the Milwaukee series, and now he gives up a big one to Nunez. And 
you know, he, he, he really wants to start. Yes, he accepted the role, and Maeda accepted the role, et cetera. You know, Maeda didn't want to go to the bullpen initially, but they did. And that's what, you know, that's what you have to do if, you, if you're a team guy. But he wasn't as effective out of the bullpen. I got to say, just what didn't have the, the command. You know, a year ago, he was phenomenal as a starter. And I, I said, man, he's going to develop into a nice number two for a long time. He won whatever it was, 10 in a row, whatever. And this year, he didn't have quite the same year. Changed from going to wind up to a stretch, which that surprised me a little bit. It was puzzling, wasn't it, not? Considering how effective he was last season, too, for the majority of it. Yeah. Yeah, he was an all-star. I mean, he was unhittable. All three pitches were fantastic. But, you know, he tried to throw a a backdoor slider to uh, Nunez, and then Nunez last night said that, number one, Alex Cora told him the night before, you're going to face a lefty coming off the bench. I'm going to start Devers against their their lefty. I'm not going to start you, but I want you ready for one of their lefties. And he said, you might see Alex Wood. So when he saw Alex Wood get up, Nunez right away goes in and looks at video. He said, I looked at eight or nine different videos of him facing, and he's faced him before, and how he was going to pitch me. And he said, so I was sitting off speed, first pitch. I was sitting, uh, I was sitting slider. Hits it out of the ballpark. So, you know, they were well prepared. They were really well prepared. Not that the Dodgers weren't. I'm sure they do the same thing. And, and you know, they, they've shown that. They were well prepared. You know what guys are going to throw you. Gonna, but he said, I knew he wasn't going to throw me first pitch fastball, which that's not automatic with Alex because his first pitch is a sinker. And if he throws a good one, if a guy's looking for it and it goes lower than, than your low ball hitter and it goes lower, you'll either roll it over to the left side and, you, and double play or get out of the inning. So, I mean, I think that's why Alex came in, actually, because he, if he's if he's on his game, he can get the ground ball like Alexander. And that's what you're looking for. But, again, it's Fenway. It's cold out there. Uh, the, you've got to have your secondary pitch immediately to come in. And the Red Sox were used to it, and they were able to do it until their secondary first pitch. But then they're blowing 100 miles an hour up in the zone. They had three guys that could do that. So, yeah, it was um, – some of the moves that you make in a regular season against the better teams, you don't make the same moves just because it worked in the regular season. You know, you can have the same type of game plan, the same type of formula. Everybody says you do what got you there. Yeah, you do. But having been through playoffs before, not only in the big leagues, but also in the minor leagues with the Dodgers and, and then six out of the eight years that managed, and one year we won the whole championship of all AAA you manage differently. I remember against the lefty we in Colorado Springs, a guy named Kevin Bierce, never made it to the big leagues, I don't believe, with Cleveland, but he beat us four times that year. And I put my right-handed lineup in there, and I said, you know what? His best pitch is to change up. I'm going to take – I'm going to – and then we were in a playoff game against them. It was the year we won it all, 1990, Albuquerque Dukes. I said, Wayne Kirby, I said, Wayne, the day before, I said, Wayne, I, I talked to Claude Osteen, my pitching coach, and Von Joshua, my hitting coach, and I said, Josh, get Wayne ready. We called Wayne over. I said, Wayne, you're going to lead off tomorrow. He goes, oh, I'm going to play against the lefty. I said, yeah, you're going to lead off. And I said, we're going to take that change up away from him. If he wants to throw you change ups, fine, but we're going to we're going to change his thought process because he's he's prepared for the lineup we gave him all summer four different times. We knocked him out in the second inning. Yeah. And we beat them, and that was a championship game, and we won the whole thing. We went on to the next round, and then we, we won the whole thing against the Angels. And, and Wayne led off with a home run. When he saw that lineup that he was facing after preparing the night before to face my right-handed lineup, it, it shook him, and you could see he was rattled. So 
you don't do things always the same just because you, that's what's got you there. You have to do things a little bit differently now. If you're not a hit-and-run team, you don't all of a sudden start hit-and-running. I don't mean that. I just mean with the different lineups and things like that and the adjustments you have to make against certain pitchers. And, and yes, you can lay a bunt down once in a while. And, yeah, you can, you can try to go the other way you know, and work on that. You know, and I understand talking to Rick Monday that Alex Cora took infield the other day in Fenway Park when it was cold and got everybody loose and ready and all that. And just things like that, you know. And I thought, too, the other thing, Fenway Park, the first two games, I thought the defense, the outfield defense had to be the best for me out there because it's a tough place to play. They have their own the triangle in center field, but the monster's 38 feet high. The foul lines, there's not much territory there when you go against the, the big sidewall in Fenway Park. Jock Peterson couldn't get to a ball or got to it, but he didn't catch a ball because the wall was there in left field, foul territory. Normally a ball he would catch. The ball that Kike, when J.D. Marhina, he didn't know if it was gone, if it was off the wall or where it was. It was in the triangle. It never hit the wall. It short hopped it. And if he gets back to the triangle, he catches it. But that's because, you know, they didn't, they didn't play there. And I thought the, the, the outfield there, in Fenway Park was going to make a difference. They they had Puig with his you know too deep on JD Martinez's blooper to right field. That was by intent. JD tried to get his hands inside the ball. That's what he does all the time. He goes to right field and center field better than he does left field. So when when Puig was that deep, it shocked me it, because the wind is slightly blowing in from right field in the fall in, in Fenway Park in in Boston, and so they're not you're not going to be able to drive a ball to right field like that. You know, and Puig's best power is what he saw last night or the night, two nights ago, left center. Um, not that he can't hit to, to left center and right, but not in that ballpark in the fall. And it's deep to right field there. It's 380 to the line. I mean, to the straightaway right field, it's 380. So you got to be in shallower. And you, and you play to take the base hit away in that situation because that was the go-ahead runs, not the double. You don't worry about the double there. You take away the base hit. And we're, that's a different situation. If you're in the ninth inning and you got a one-run lead and there's a runner at first and two outs, yeah, you take away the double so they don't tie the game. Or if there's two on or whatever, yeah, you take away the double, then you play deep. But not in that situation where a base hit beats you. It's a totally different situation. So I just thought there were little intricacies that, that surprised me. That's all. The they devil's did. in the details, and Skipper knows them. Skipper, let me details. give you uh, three yeah. names here. Kershaw, Roberts, Machado. Who's staying? Who's going this offseason? I don't think uh, – oh, Roberts is going to get an extension. There's no doubt. He talked about that the day before on MLB Network Radio. I heard him talking about that. Uh, they were they were pounding him pretty hard on it, and, and he basically admitted that they're working on it and something will get done. But that was before so, game four, right? <laughs> yeah, it was. And, I, you know, I, I – yeah, it was. And, and remember, a lot of these the things that, that Dave does, we don't know 100% exactly. I mean, if he's getting information during the game, I mean, that's sure. – But the bottom line is when you're running a game, and I heard what Dave Dombrowski said. He said after the game, he said, hey, I, my manager, he runs the game. I don't tell him – I don't give him lineups. It's, he writes the lineup. He runs the game. That's what I hired him to do. We talk every day. But he, but he. So that's the old school way. Today, I, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of managers, not just Dave, are getting lineups to choose from or things like that. And yeah, they may write the lineup, but they're getting a lot of advice. Hey, this would be pretty good if you, you did this, or this is the best one tonight. And as a collab, when you hear the word collaboration, that means there's a few people, you know, weighing in on it and influencing you. So. So 
sometimes if, if I were in that situation, I would say, well, basically what you're telling me is I got to put this lineup out there tonight. I'm not saying that's what happened because I don't know. I'm just saying that's what it sounds like happened. But in game, that has to be your decision. I mean, that has to be Dave's decision. I mean, if it's three times around the lineup and the numbers are, hey, the batting average against is 300, three times around the lineup, but two times around the lineup, it's 220, and one time around the lineup, it's 170. That's not true every time. It changes best based on that's where the eye test comes in. And I think as a manager, hopefully, um, guys are allowed to do that in today's game. I know Alex Corey is, obviously, because Dave Dabrowski said he was. On Dave's situation, I don't know. But as a manager, you have to take responsibility for it because you're answering for the ball club. So that's the you bottom had to answer line. to the president. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole nother. Yeah, but, not Andrew know, Friedman, the president. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. I saw that. That's unbelievable. Yeah, that's right. He weighed in for sure, didn't he? That was, uh, I was wondering, well, Bassett texted me that. I said, well, you got to be kidding me. Yeah, but what about yeah. Machado uh, moving forward there? Is there any, oh, what is the likelihood he's back? I don't think they're going to resign Machado. You got Seeger coming back. Yeah. Tommy John surgery for an everyday player takes doesn't take 18 months like it does for a pitcher. It takes. Usually from, you know, you can even come back in 10 months, nine months, uh, but you'd like a full year, and it's been a full year plus. Uh, so I, I think that Corey will be ready. He should be ready by opening day next year, all things going well, in a normal rehab for an everyday player. So I can't – and Turner's locked in at third. You love mm-hmm. Jason Turner. I mean, he's he's got the best two-strike approach on the ball club, one of the best two-strike approaches on the team and I uh, on the league, and I hope – I hope other Dodger players follow his lead on, on how to approach with two two strike hitting. Yeah, he can actually hit the uh, opposite but, field. But, uh, Machado, I don't see I don't see them re-signing Machado. No, Kershaw, that's a tough one. I here's my take on it. He Clayton's what thirty years old. Mm-hmm. Thirty years old. He's got two more years on a huge deal, a lot of money. This may be the last time that he gets a chance to get a five or six year deal from from somebody or he could do a deal within three days and get an addition to the two years he's got left. I don't think there won't. I think if he's back with the Dodgers, there's going to be an extension on top of what he's got. Let me just put it that way. So if they work something out, then you'll hear maybe three days from now, like he said, he's he's going to stay, but he's going to be here for till it's through 35 or 36 because they added three or four years in the contract. Even if with- they do that, I think he stays in my opinion, but if he does, if they don't, uh, you know, uh, most guys opt out and just to test it, and then it doesn't mean the Dodgers still can't re-sign him. And he just, you know, some some guys want to just feel it out, feel the market, and see and see what's out there. Uh, there's a lot of rumblings around that you know Texas would like a homegrown guy. They're going to have a new manager, and they want to get back on the map again. And of course, Clayton lives there, so they know about losing back to back World Series. <laughs> yeah, as they, yeah, they, as they tweeted like, the Dodgers and, about that and, last night. Yeah, they know what it's like, and they've and they've gone downhill since those days of Ron Washington. Right. Alan, uh, not or Jeff Bannister did a nice job, but he gets fired, mm-hmm. and so they got to turn the page and get the fans back in there. Because I can tell you, having lived there in Dallas, it's a cowboy ta- town. If the Rangers aren't in play in August or even late July, people don't go out to Texas Stadium. They don't go out to that ballpark. Even Whatever with, they want to name the new one, I don't know what it's going to be. Right, uh, Kershaw's diminished, uh, you know, abilities and his, you know, losing some velocity off of his fastball and the slider, not going to it as often for whatever reason. You do believe there's a team? It only takes one. 
that's willing to throw a five or six year contract worth upwards of thirty million dollars per year at him, even with his diminishing I, I skills. Do. Wow. Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I do. And not not because of yesterday or even what he's done in the playoffs. I, I just do. I mean, if you still look at what he did in the regular season um, without that fastball and, and with a, more of a cutter now, he's a smart guy. And the one thing about Clayton is he's got exceptional command, usually, of all of his pitches. Um, they just made a good adjustment. I mean, that's the best team in, in baseball. That's why they won 108 games. That's why they beat 100 you know, team win Houston Astros and the same thing with the Yankees. They'd be two teams that won over 100 games. They, they're that good. And they added in the right places. They added Pierce and they added Evaldi, which were huge pieces for them. They got rid of Hanley Ramirez. I mean, you release a guy like Hanley in July, there was a reason for that. And that was their four-hitter because this team was the most unselfish team that I've seen. Uh, even Let me just tell you something before I go. Even the Even the ceremony that they had when they won and beat the Astros, they listened to Alex Cora get the award, Dave Dombrowski talk. None of them were celebrating yet with champagne or anything. They were all quiet, listening and watching until they were all done. And then the clubhouse guy was handing out a bottle to each player. They didn't pop one until everybody had one. And that, that comes from Alex Cora. And the players bought into that. We're going to be humble. Uh, we're going to be a team. We're going to play as a team. We're going to do old school. I, I hired Ron Reinecke because he, he, I played for Ron in, in uh what did he say? 1997, I played for Ron Reinecke, and he said, Ron Reinecke, Dave Dombrowski wanted him to have a veteran bench coach, and Alex at first fought that and said, no, I don't need that. I've managed before. Dave said, no, you need a veteran bench coach. He's going to be a big help to you, and Ron Reinecke managed six or seven years in the Dodger system, and Alex, Alex Corey even said last night in his postgame, I wanted to bring the Dodger away from those old days back. And Ron Reinecke helped me do that. And that's why we were unselfish. We were team-oriented. We did little things. We hit and ran. That was part of our game plan. We hit and ran first pitch. In fact, he said, I use the text. Talk about modern times. He said, I would text Mookie and Ben Attendee the night before. And he would, they would say to both of them, via text, if you get on, for, you get on base, you're going to run first pitch. That's what they did against Clayton Kershaw. We're going to hit and run first pitch. That's what we're going to do. They did it three times, and they got base hits all three times. Holt got that base hit to center when Kinsler got the third, the other one when, with Mookie, and I can't remember the other one. No. But that was by design the night before. I mean, that's that's preparation right there. I, I've got They're to lucky you. they didn't play the Cardinals. They would have intercepted those text messages. They would have. <laughs> they might have. <laughs> yeah, the you got to be careful with that today. That surprised me. How about it? I guess nobody picks up the phone or just uses their cell phone to call anymore. That's, that's where it's different, no. but. Why would you ever uh, use a phone to call somebody? Yeah, I know. Why would you? You know, try to go look for somebody. You tell somebody, you know, uh, get a nephew that's ten years old. He, well, what's a payphone? <laughs> I say, oh, never yeah. mind. Watch some old Columbos or something. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he is the skipper, Kevin Kennedy. You hear him during the season call games with Rick Monday on AM five seventy LA Sports. You hear him on Sirius XM. And he is the reason why we all know catchers make the best managers. No Skipper, thanks so much for doing this today. Comprehensive mm-hmm. postseason Dodger talk. That was wonderful. Thank you. You got it, man. Pleasure. Anytime, guys. I appreciate it. How about that? Who's biting a real show? Quit trying to bite a real show. You think Petros Money could keep him for that long? I don't Not think much. so. That's right. <laughs> this was the definitive Kevin Kennedy interview of the day. Yeah. I'd say so. If you don't believe it. <laughs> F you. These nuts. I did like the memes popping up over the weekend saying, especially after last night's celebration, and it happened a lot in game four too, 
Saying like, how come Dave Roberts isn't in that team picture with the Red Sox? He was just as important to them as anybody else. Oh, MVP. Oh, Dave Roberts helping out the Red Sox win another championship. It's like 04 all over again. Yeah. No, there's a lot of the gifts I, floating around with him stealing the base and clapping his hands. I think that was the most overused joke on Twitter at the time. Oh, was it? And I like it. Uh, it was a little surprising. He brings up the dimensions there of Fenway. Sure. How does Dave Roberts not give insight into Played those there. areas for uh, his defense. You're right. Uh, I mean, maybe he did. Maybe guys didn't listen. I don't know. They got caught up oh, in it. it's different. You're in the fire. I mean, there, every, lights underneath. no one baseball is hit the same way. So, I mean, you can only, you know, practice so many different angles and so many different bounces. Yeah. But, I mean, you think you'd be, for a sport that is so anal retentive about every single minute detail, you throw this ball low on the outside three inches that way and you can hit it this way. To not have every single detail dialed in defensively and all your angles figured out, you know, that's it's a little puzzling. Yeah. It's a little puzzling. Oh, Kevin Candy made it oh so clear, though, what happened in this series. Thanks again to the skipper. Follow him at Kevin Kennedy MLB. Coming up next, we will give the definitive list of Halloween movies that you should be watching right now. Halloween's on Wednesday. Kevin and I went to a party on Saturday. Maybe we'll tell you about it coming up next. Maybe, maybe we won't. It's a little hush-hush. I'll never tell. Mm -hmm. More FNA Podcast Geek News coming up. Welcome to your doom. FNA Cotton, FNA. Back in on the FNA Podcast. Thanks again to the skipper, Kevin Kennedy. Damn, joined us for like 45 minutes or something. It was amazing. I knew he, he, uh, he said he had time, but damn. He made time for us. Yeah, he always so. makes time for the listeners. He people does. People need to be educated. And he does love the people, I by need the way. to be educated. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were talking about Kershaw earlier and the type of run he needed to put together. And you know what this is similar to? Randy Johnson didn't have a lot of postseason success especially until early 2001. On. Especially early on in his career. And no he doubt. was freaking 37 in yeah. 2001 with the Arizona Diamondbacks. He came in in relief of... Uh, Kurt Schilling in Game 7 yep. off two days rest. Or maybe it was one day rest. I think it was one day, actually. He pitched in Game 6 and comes in relief in Game 7. He's 37. He pulled off. But Randy Johnson, very easy to root against. I'll say that. Yeah. Very, very easy to Welcome root against. Welcome to New York. Yeah, that's a mustache. Don't talk back to me, okay? Get the camera out of my face. His playoff ERA, 3.50. Yeah. Kershaw would kill for that. <laughs> that's true. This is true. <laughs> and I think even on the back end with New York, he was okay. I think he was dominant, but I thought he was, or was he? Uh-oh. You're, you're, you're wheezing over there. What do we, what do we got? Let's see. Oh, up. I thought you were looking at it right in your front of your face. No, I, I like, got oh. it. I thought he was okay. No. I don't think he was dominant by any stretch. Well, in the playoffs... He was not good for New York. His ERA was about uh, six and a half. Okay. <laughs> so he was not okay. It looks like 10 runs in 12 innings <laughs> or 13 innings. Oh, yeah. But he was 41 from and the 42. Look how he was so old. Hey, Nola, was it Nola Ryan like 45 and he was still striking out 15 batters? <laughs> Get off my And then fighting, fighting guys, hitting Robin Ventura in the head. By the way, Kevin Kennedy. He was the catcher during that game when that happened. Yeah, you see him in <laughs> running in the, yeah. Watch that clip. You yeah. will see Kevin Kennedy. No doubt. <sighs> All right. I'm uh, sure that was a scary situation for Robin Ventura. Yeah, getting that headlock. Yeah, speaking of scary. Getting old. It's that time of year. Old man strength. No. Alright, here we go. 
Scary movies to watch during Halloween. Multiple categories. We give this out for you guys. We do everything for you. But you need this stuff. Yeah. I don't know if we need it. I mean, we need it. Theme it up. I think we give what? up. We give out uh, Christmas movies too, and Thanksgiving movies. Yeah, you know, we did Thanksgiving because a lot of people aren't really hip to like. There's hey, there's a lot of Thanksgiving movies out there. You know, most of the time they're kind of just melded together. They yeah. just toss Thanksgiving into Christmas. What do you guys know about Pieces of April with Katie Holmes and her black boyfriend and introducing him to the family? What do you guys? Know I was about, about to, that? first of all, I was about to say like, I don't know why you felt the ne- felt the necessary to say her black boyfriend. Well, that's kind I of the can't plot just be her boyfriend. I wasn't aware. You just say, oh, here's Katie Holmes and her black boyfriend, <laughs> which she has in real life, by the way. Yeah, Jamie Foxx. Yes. All right. I mean, they don't want Jamie. you to know it. I sh- did I show you that clip? Or Jamie? I love that couple. Someone was asking Jamie Foxx about her, and he just took the microphone off and left. Someone had to save her from Tom Cruise. Jamie. <laughs> He's the man. I love Jamie Foxx. I was one of the most talented people in ever. He had one bad... Spider-Man movie? Well, that's not even on him. <laughs> one bad national anthem, okay? He can sing. Yeah. That's a tough song. It is. <laughs> Red Claire! All right, first category in your Halloween movie release is old, but not Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein old. And oh, the, man. These, Talk about scary. <laughs> these movies might actually still scare you. Okay. In here for me, we have the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, which is really freaking good. Highly recommend that, Kevin. All right. You seen it yet? I have. Now, there have been... Five other ones. There's a lot of remakes. Fact, yes. I watched the second one finally with Which Dennis Hopper. And it's pretty good. Pop quiz. It's actually one of the better sequels. Uh, but outside of that, I think there was a Michael Bay produced one. No thanks. Hmm, really? So there's a lot of explosions then. Yeah. And People was, explode when oh, they get hit by a chainsaw. I mean, it makes sense to me. <laughs> oh, you know what? The mic, the actual, the chainsaw was actually a bazooka. It didn't actually slice people. It fired off the actual blades at the end, and then when they hit people, they exploded. Yeah, it was like the chainsaw in Evil Dead. <laughs> now, talk about going back. <laughs> Evil Dead. I think I saw that one in theater. Groovy. <laughs> Evil Dead 2 is basically a remake. I didn't see Evil Dead 2. Groovy. And it's way better, hmm. by the way. Okay. Uh, Halloween, the original. Yep. That's in this category. Now, have you seen the new Halloween? I have not. Okay. What, what have we heard? Good things? I've heard decent things. I haven't heard anything. No one says like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. But I haven't heard like trash, terrible, you know, I haven't heard any of that. Is it like a reboot, reimagining, alternate universe type of I honestly don't know. Because I thought Jamie Curtis died in one of them. Right. I don't know. But then there was kind of, there was the nebulous ending out of the one of the remakes where you had like the white horse and were they really alive or was it someone imagining a dream? Was it in the future? I didn't see that one. It was like an angel. Yeah, it was the Rob Zombie uh, version. Uh, The Omen, which is pretty good. And it has the professor, the scientist from Secret of the Ooze. Oh, I thought you meant the basketball player. (laughs) I know he can act too. He used to work out at the 24-hour fitness in Burbank or in NoHo. I saw him once. Oh, yeah? And people kept trying to bait him to get out onto the basketball court. And he was like, no, I'm good. Just working out. Right. <laughs> the Exorcist. Even though, you know, he's trying to kind of convince himself in his head, man, I can school these cats oh. so easy. He's like, you're going to pay me? I get paid for this normally. Yeah. If you're good at something, never do it for free. Mm-hmm. The Exorcist. Very good. The next category is the 80s kind of ruled the horror genre. You have The Shining. 
which is on Netflix right now. Netflix actually has a separate category right now called Halloween. Oh, good. They lumped all Not just their horror, movies together. Just, okay, good. Nightmare on Elm Street 1 and 3, Dream Warriors, right. with Patricia Arquette. Poltergeist, which has a really unsettling ending. Because it doesn't really end. They just leave the house. They just peace out. They just jump in the car hmm. and leave. Okay. I'm... With the coach. Sounds good to me. Wait, so it ends the way that most Halloween movies should go. When the house says, get out, it's like, all right, well, see y'all bitches later. I'm out. The end. That took about 20 seconds. Cool. You're out. <laughs> oh, let's go explore where that voice is coming from. The, the hell do you give a care? Get the hell out the house. I'll be right back. <laughs> uh, here's two of my favorites. Hellraiser 1 and 2. You've talked about Hellraiser before. Mm. Hellraiser Hellbound is rough. They go to hell, and it feels like what hell would be like. Hmm. And I'm scared. I'm going back to church on Sunday. <laughs> uh, the thing with Kurt Russell. No. Return to Oz. Uh, this is a good one. And they are definitely not in Kansas anymore. This is a movie I saw with my sister, thinking, oh, it's going to be like the original Wizard of Oz. Oh, it's going to be cool. No. Scared the hell out of us. Hmm. There were these Euro trash guys on roller skates going around. There Did was they like replace the blue flying monkeys? A headless witch. Yeah. The the monkeys, I, I don't remember them in this God, one. they should have had like a monkey head like hanging from a noose or, like, or just hanging from like a string when you first get back into Oz. Now it's like, oh yeah, this is a little bit of a different twist. It's got, I forget her name, but she's a little girl in this, but she's uh, the water boy's love interest. Okay. Kind of a snaggle tooth. Mm-hmm. But also, she's got something dirty about her I like. <laughs> There's also The Fly with Jeff Goldblum. No, I'm fairly alarmed here. And Friday the 13th with Kevin Bacon. Mm-hmm. Okay, now we're going to I Love the 90s horror. Bram Stroker's Dracula with Gary Oldman, Anthony Hopkins, Keanu Reeves. Stroker? Harley Newer. <laughs> Monica Bellucci. I think she gets naked as a vampire. Mm. Not bad. Interview with a vampire with Brad Pitt right. and Tom Cruise. Silence of the Lambs, which Kevin hates on. I don't hate <laughs> on it. I just say, first of all, it's not that scary. Yeah, if you don't look when Buffalo Bill's getting naked with the skin on. Well, I mean, that's that's that was disturbing, but I wouldn't say it was scary. <laughs> I'm still scared. I'm scarred. That's <laughs> scary. From a film-wise and like story-wise, it's intelligent, it's excellent, but I don't think it's scary. What about the guy that throws his bodily fluids at Jodie Foster? Well, that may be a little gross. <laughs> yeah, take, a little, gross. take a little shower, you'll be okay. That wasn't Slimer. <laughs> that was different. <laughs> Nightbreed. I saw that recently. It was pretty good. Okay. I think that's by the same director, Clive Barker, who did Hellraiser. The Prophecy with Christopher Walken. He's fantastic as always. Oh, it's also got my favorite actor that plays Casey Jones. I don't know his oh, name, really? okay. but I love him. All right. <laughs> Brain Scan with skinny Edward Furlong. <laughs> he got fat later on. Yeah. Because he easily could have kept playing John Connor with the way the movies came out chronologically. Right. He, he would have grown perfectly. with it. You're right. He grew a little too much. Yeah. And John Connor was supposed to be like the leader of a rebellion, you know, fighting robots. It's not going to be happening when you were, you know, hauling around 400 pounds there, player. Hey, fat ass. I'm pretty sure you'd be one of the first ones to go. Here's a weight loss plan. Knifed. Like what happened to Drew Barrymore at the beginning of Scream. That's on the list for the 90s. Ravenous with Guy Pierce. Very good. 
about cannibalism. Okay. And the original Blair Witch. All right. I love the original Blair Witch. Mm-hmm. Not number two, which ruined a relationship for me, I'm convinced. <laughs> the movie was just such a downer on that date. Then there's the 2000 horror movies, also called You Oughts to Know About These Horror Movies from the First Decade of the New Century. The first three paranormal activity movies are really good. If you like the found footage, security cams right. type stuff. Goes in with Blair Witch. Mm-hmm. They're scary. Uh, the third one kind of takes place in the 80s, but it was made in the 2000s. The Ring, pretty good. People love The Ring. First one. Yep. I don't know if the second one was called Rings, but it wasn't that good. It will make sense. <laughs> Ginger Snaps, werewolf movie. With teenage girls, and I think it's involving a metaphor about them uh, getting their period. Oh. And that period is like them turning into werewolves. I think I just, that's what they're going for. I just uh, thought they had like Lindsay Lohan and Ed Sheeran running around or something. <laughs> just a bunch of redheads or something. Drag Me to Hell, a Sam Raimi movie. Mm-hmm. I think there was a redhead in, in that. Pretty good. After He rebounded after Spider-Man 3 with that movie. The Strangers. The Strangers. Liv Tyler... And not, I want to say Scott Staff from Creed, but no. Scott Speedman, who plays the Lycan in the Underworld movie. That's one of the best horror movies, modern horror movies ever. An ending very disturbing that I've never gotten over. What Lies Beneath, oh, with Michelle Pfeiffer. She's getting pretty Pfeiffery, too. Mm. She's climbing up on Harrison Ford. What about your life? That's a good movie. I think, who did that? Rob Reiner? I don't know. The first Saw. Second one was alright too. But now there's ten. There's like fifty of them now. I can't keep up. The Shadow of a Vampire, which is more of just a well made movie. Willem Dafoe, John Malkovich, Nosferatu, mm-hmm. them the making Nosferatu. Um Session Nine is one of my favorites. David Caruso has maybe the best F bomb in the history of film. You have to use so many cuss words. And that's including Yo, but that was a film TV show. Right. Well, I'm a mushroom cloud laying mother mother. I really think David Caruso, Miami CSI, right, did it better. Uh, now we move into a horror subgenre called Freaky Foreigners. Why I'm an isolationist xenophobe. My so the Adam Olsen category. <laughs> my favorite horror foreign films. Let the right one in, which they Americanized, and it was also pretty good. You Wolf, got me on that. Wolf Creek 1 and 2. Yeah. They got like an Australian Freddy Krueger guy. Oh, very scary. Suicide Club, where there is a fruit roll-up of human flesh in. Hmm. <laughs> is it flavored? Like they have like cherry flavored and apple flavored? and Are there little pictures of what the human used to look like? When you remember the fruit roll-ups, you roll them out and there's like little cutout yeah. like photos. Of, like you the punch little, it out. Yeah, you punch it out and there's like a dinosaur. Make art. Is this like, oh, this... Oh, so this was Megan, apparently. That's how that looked. All right, cool. bitch. <laughs> oh, tastes like her, too. Very disturbing movie. Uh, then there's one called The Loved Ones, where a girl gets even with a boy who wouldn't take her out on the prom. And she is really getting even with him. It's some torture porn type stuff involved. Hmm. Uh, Eden Lake with Michael Fassbender fighting a bunch of kids. But he doesn't have his Magneto he's powers. Fight, he's fighting children? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Those kids had to pay. Eight-year-olds, dude. They were demented. It's not like Children of the Corn or something, is it? 
Uh, I don't know. I think they were just normal, mm-hmm. but they were like the ultimate bad Nelson from mm. Simpsons type kids. Yeah. Real troublemakers, miscreants. Uh, matures. I have on this list, but I don't even remember. I might have watched that one drunk. Matures. I can't tell you what was in that. <laughs> Next is you were a little scared, but then you laughed. That category. Okay. Horror movies that are also comedic at times. Shaun of the Dead, mm-hmm. Evil Dead 2 we talked about earlier, yep. Army of Darkness. Army of Darkness was a good one. Both Ghostbusters, even though Bill but, Murray hates the second one. Were those really were those listed as horror movies officially when they came out? Well, scary movies. Okay, all right. But they were funny. Yeah. The Grindhouse movies with mm-hmm. Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino right. from Dust Till Dawn with George Clooney in his finest performance. Zombieland. Yeah. Same director did Venom. Oh, the Monster Squad. Didn't see Monster Squad. It's like the B movie version of Goonies, but some people, huh. some people okay. will like it more. Okay. And Tremors, the first one. There's been four other ones somehow. And I rented like two of them one night back in the day in junior high. Big now, mistake. Tremors was the one about like the giant underground, like, what are they? Are they Those little worms, worms or something? Things. Okay. Kevin Bacon. I'm aware of it. I haven't seen it, though. He deked him off a cliff. (laughs) The final category is, I saw these recently. They're relatively new horror movies, but they don't totally suck. They're just a little disappointing. (laughs) Like the Dodgers. The end of the (laughs) year. This contains movies like Insidious. I think there's multiple of those. The Conjuring movies. Conjuring, yeah. I'm aware, but I haven't seen any of them. They have like a universe. The Annabelle movies, the Nun movie is a part of the Conjuring universe. Those are all right. Hmm. I heard the new Annabelle creation is actually really good, but I haven't seen it yet. The Invitation, which has been on Netflix for a while, is good. Honeymoon with this girl from Game of Thrones. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Jon Snow's old flame, and I mean flame. Big time redhead. Get your tap toes! <laughs> Uh, it follows, which is really good, actually. I wouldn't. I shouldn't even be in this category. What the hell's wrong with me? I know nothing. Adam Oslin. That's a good movie. Uh, what else? The Pack, with some I think wild dogs in Australia that attack a family's home. Giant group of dingoes just goes after some guy and his fosters, or what? Yeah. All right. The dingo definitely ate the baby in this mm-hmm. one. <laughs> What's up, dog? Hush which was heavily advertised. I think it was a blind guy in a house, or maybe that was Don't Speak. I There was two movies that were very hmm. similar. Oculus, Gerald's Game, which is on Netflix. I think that was a Netflix exclusive. Okay. With the hot mom from San Andreas. Oh, okay. Yeah. Who's also in, we talked about it the other day, The Haunting of Hill House, mm-hmm. the Netflix series. I finished it very good. Okay. Not a movie, but we can include it here. Definitely watch that. Uh, the Void, which is a throwback to 80s horror. It uses all practical effects. It feels like Hellraiser and okay. Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and all those. And then The Monster, which I think might have been a foreign film. So, yeah, I've messed up some of my own categories. Wow. <laughs> now, you could also add in Donnie Darko or The Crow or Stranger Things or Nightmare Before Christmas or Ed Wood. Those are kind of Halloween-ish movies. Sure, yeah. Especially Donna Darko with that that creepy-ass rabbit. Oh, yeah, Frank. Do you believe in time travel? So that's what I got. 
Okay, I like it. It's good. You and wanna... I annually throw in the creep show in the funny category because that's just one of my favorite Halloween or favorite scary movies that isn't scary in the least bit. Very, very 80s hokey. They thought it was going to be oh, scary, they but thought it they wasn't. Was, they thought they was doing something. They really thought they was doing something. That thing was hilarious to me. Those are my favorite types of movies to watch. <laughs> the train wrecks. Yes. <laughs> Troll yes. 2, The Room. I, heard like the, I don't think Creepshow 2 was that good. I think I only saw it once and I was like, well, this isn't as good. Uh. Maybe it was scarier and not as funny. That's why I disliked it as much more. I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> they actually kind of pulled it off. Yeah, it's like the hell. Damn this it. It's not how it's supposed to go. Uh, 949-478-1197. To call and leave a number, or excuse me, leave us a voicemail. That is the number to call and leave us a voicemail, 949-478-1197. We do kind of get their numbers, though. This is true. I actually can see <laughs> your number when you call us. So We wouldn't give them out. Oh, of course not. Talk some sh- we only give out money here. That's right. Let's see who we have first. Hey, guys. It's Dan in Indiana. Um, big Red Sox fan here. Adam, you might have. Figured that out when I rushed to the Red Sox defense after Tim Cates posted that Red Sox payroll tweet. Anyway, I'm not here to gloat. I just want to say that I had a giant smile on my face when Kershaw came out to pitch the seventh inning because we've all seen that story written before and we knew how it would end. Anyways, hope you guys are doing well. I look forward to an offseason of more Quando. See ya. He referenced there this tweet from Tim Cates, which is very bitter and very inaccurate. I did see it. <laughs> this was after game four. Quote, tip of the cap to the Red Sox, who are, who are up 3-1 in the series. They are a really good team, but I hope the national media reminds everybody that Boston has the number one highest payroll in the MLB. I understand the Dodgers are top five, but let's not pretend like this is a gritty underdog Boston team. Tim, who was pretending that? No one ever said no that. One. They were favorite coming in. <laughs> You're placing an argument that wasn't made out there. The skipper last segment was the first person I heard who actually predicted the Dodgers to win this series. Like, no, none of the pundits that I saw, and I, I, I'm not going to act like I saw all of them, but many I took of them the Dodgers, MLB Network, I didn't. But I took the uh, Dodgers to start the year to win the World Series. Right. I ain't going to stop now. Right. <laughs> I mean, if they make it this far, why would you change, I no. guess? Um, so yeah, that, I, I saw that tweet by Tim too. And it was like, all right, no one ever said they're a, a gritty underdog team. You don't have two MVP candidates in your lineup and have someone consider you to be an underdog. It's not true, Tim. The best part too, is he has to admit that the Dodgers also have a top five payroll. Aren't they third? <laughs> I think the Yankees like, are two and the Dodgers really are three. Have no point like, here. Come on, Tim. This does not hold water at all. I just saw Tim two seconds ago in the hallway too. I think he's trying to kick us out of the studio. What else we have? Tough ass. So guys, uh, we had a great El Clasico this morning, man. Uh, Barcelona put the whipping on uh, Mr. James's uh, a la Madrid. Uh, Suarez had a hat trick. It was he had an amazing game. He dedicated his third goal to the newborn he's gonna have. But yeah, it was a real good game without Messi included. But yeah, uh, yo, James, Madrid has some real trouble. I know you're gonna probably get some shit on my. Soccer analysis. This is kind of like soccer analysis for dummies, and I appreciate it. Going back and forth, James. Thank you. And um, y'all have a good, good uh, Monday. Yeah. Take care, good guys. Monday. Thanks. Thanks for the call. Appreciate Andre, it, Andre. Three thousand ways to hate on this show. And you're right. The Dodgers, the third largest payroll. Boston Red go. Sox, the first. 
You want to guess who the second is? Pop quiz, hot shot. It's not easy to guess because they did not make the playoffs. Oh, the second highest payroll did not make the postseason. Is it a team that probably has a lot of dead money? There's some dead money. There's some dead money anyways, man. What if it's the Angels? You're close in a way. It's my team. The Giants have the second Giants highest payroll in baseball? Giants million on the books. That was about to... Who the heck are they paying? They paid Longoria and McCutcheon this offseason, and Matt Cain was still getting paid. God. (laughs) Wow. For shame. Yeah, yeah, for shame. Three World Series later, I think you'll take it. Yeah, it's all All good. What do we got? Sorry, Dodgers. Hey, guys, it's Alex from Ontario. Uh, Just trying to work right now. Uh, Kind of slow to get up this morning. Feeling a little somber uh, over uh, the game five last night. I just want to uh, talk about the Dodgers a little bit. Uh, I just want to say that uh, who would have thought that Yasiel Puig would have been kind of the best player on the team day in, day out, getting the clutch hits, home runs. Uh, and also, uh, you know, if Clayton Kershaw does opt out, uh, I guess it wouldn't too much be of a, of a bad thing, uh, seeing how kind of at times he kind of hampered uh, the team. The Dodgers rolling him out as the number one starter when, in fact, it should be Walker Bueller, Rich Hill, uh, and then Ryu. So, technically, Kershaw, your third, fourth best pitcher. Um, so, if he leaves, not too sad to go, even though he's a great Dodger. Uh, but if he does come back, it would be great. Hopefully, the Dodgers can uh, come to the senses and see that he's not the pitcher he once was unless uh, Kershaw pulls the Greg Maddox. Um, but that's about it. It was a great season. Uh, every game was in, was amazing, uh, great series. But yeah, it just seems like the Red Sox uh, got clutch hits, got hits when it mattered most, as opposed to the Dodgers, who just relied on the home run. Uh, that's it, guys. Have a great day. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Alex. And by the way, we talked about this a little bit either last week, yeah, at some point last week. Don't denigrate, uh, don't denigrate Greg Maddox by comparing him to Clayton Kershaw. Greg Maddox's yeah. postseason numbers are nowhere near as astronomically bad as Kershaw's. Matter of fact, his numbers in the postseason, from an ERA standpoint, is actually pretty good. Well, his numbers in his prime were great yeah. in the postseason for Atlanta. And was that Alex in Ontario? It was Alex in Ontario, yes. You made a good point there about Yasiel Puig. He hit, I think, just under 300 in the playoffs, 297. And unfortunately for him... Everybody's already forgotten about that huge home run he had in game oh. four. That should have been the defining moment for him and for the Dodgers if they had come back in the series. Once they lost that lead, they had a, sh- a close-up of Yasiel Puig in the outfield, crouching down with his head buried because he knew these efforts stole my moment. <laughs> you freaking effed up my moment. I was going to be the hero again, just like I was in, in that clinching game against the Milwaukee Brewers. This was going to be my moment because I, he's like, look, man, I laid it out there. I made the prediction oh. for before the start of the playoffs after 163, we're going to win the World Series. We're going to get back and we're going to be able to win. Now he had 250, but he had, again, some big hits in this series, made contact on that one ball that extended that game that turned into a marathon. He had some clutch plays, something he was being criticized for early in his career for not getting himself. He he got benched in 2014 against the St. Louis Cardinals, as he should yeah, have he was been. I was poorly. screaming early in the series. He had like 10 Ks. He played great in the playoffs this season. Yep. It's a shame that it didn't end up in a World Series victory for him, and you could tell he really took it to heart. Sure did. He was in tears. Yeah. He was distraught, despondent. He was. You never see Puig like that, and 
to the point about Greg Maddox, 3.27 ERA overall in the playoffs. But if you look at prime years from 95 to 99, I think his ERA is probably below two. Wow. <laughs> and it's a significant amount of starts, too, because Atlanta was in the playoffs every year. And even like, say, even like towards the end of his career where Chicago, he comes to the Dodgers like twice. He, pitched he came to the Dodgers two or three times at the end of his career. Four innings for the Dodgers in 2008 in the playoffs. Did not give up uh, an earned run. Okay. Yeah, he, yeah. I think he may have started a game. I know he... He was 42. Yeah, he was up there. He got he got around to the Padres a couple of times towards the end. Yeah, Greg Maddox, he stuck around for a bit. He never got destroyed, though. Like there, Kershaw. There's a great quote, since we're talking about Greg Maddox. Oh, I got to find this. Let's go to the next call, and I'll try to find this quote about Tony Gwynn from Greg Maddox. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Fabian. Uh, shout out to James Stubbs, because he gave me a shout out. So, right back at you, brother. Uh, anyways, you asked about a scary movie to recommend. I don't really find scary movies scary. I find, you know, real stuff more terrifying. Like those kind of David Ayer movies when he's doing about cops. Like, and the watch. And the watch is scary. You know, it is not scary to me because it's bullshit. Um, but I did see The Grudge in the, at the, um, theater with a girl. And, uh, I don't remember how the movie ended, but it was a, Happy ending for me, you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Anyway, I'm really bummed that the Dodgers lost and then the Raiders are, I don't know, are they are they really tanking to get that Joey Bosa's brother? Or is that happening or are they just really bad? I don't know. Anyway, and oh, I, for some reason I was thinking about pro wrestling. I was wondering, did you, when did you figure out that it was phony or did someone tell you? Like what age were you? I think I was like six and my dad said that it was phony because we used to watch boxing and then those guys would be beating all up and then the pro you know wwf guys would be fighting like every day so that's why i figured it out hmm, now i'm all bummed out anyway talk to you guys later bye nice call there oh hey no no grudge held against that movie after what you got afterwards right i, I will say not yeah <laughs> did, did she look like sarah michelle geller adam wishes it would have worked out better for him when he went to go see what movie was that, that did you... she disconnect her jaw yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know. There's a joke there somewhere about somebody's jaw doing a. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wrestling, probably. Yeah, I was probably around the same age. I'd say somewhere between seven, seven and nine is when I realized, okay, this is totally fake and it's strictly entertainment and not actually fighting. Because yeah, at the, your, your younger formative years, between like four and six, you just see guys in a ring, you know, quote unquote, hitting each other. You just assume all of it is real. I don't remember ever having that moment, but I think it's just because I didn't watch wrestling when I was super young. By the time I was it? watching it. I already knew Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny were fake. Okay, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I I'm living in a nightmare. I was more of a wrestling fan before I was a general sports fan in my childhood. So I grew up more watching that before I transitioned over into actually watching sports. Listen to this. Okay. This speaks to how great Tony Gwynn was, but is Greg Maddox explaining uh, pitching and philosophy and all that. Maddox was convinced no hitter could tell the speed of a pitch with any meaningful accuracy. To demonstrate, he pointed at a road a quarter mile away and said it was impossible to tell if a car was going 55, 65, or 75 miles per hour unless there was another car nearby to offer a point of reference. So he's talking about deception and how he got away with his pitches, not throwing heat. Makes sense. He said, you just, quote, you just can't do it. 
Sometimes hitters can pick up differences in spin. They can identify pitches if there are different release points or if a curveball starts with an upward hump as it leaves the pitcher's hand. But if a pitcher can change speeds, every hitter is helpless, limited limited by human vision, except for that F. Tony Gwynn. <laughs> <laughs> no one can ever master Tony Gwynn. Oh, man. That's so good. Greg Maddox, old Matthew Broderick there. I like it. I like <laughs> Except it. Except for that F, Tony <laughs> Gwynn, rip Tony Gwynn. Yes, sir. One greatest of the hitter. All-time greats. And he might have broke, he might have hit 494. Oh. Where is the 30 for 30 on the 1994 strike season where all these fantastical things were happening? Where Montreal Expos were so great. Where Matt Williams was on pace for the home run record. It's such a crazy thing for baseball to go on strike then. Mine oh. to lob a call over to Bill Simmons. Is he even in charge of that anymore? He doesn't work at ESPN. I don't know. It was yeah. his creation. I don't know. Then well, HBO got rid of him. Yeah. So, you know. One more call. You're out. One more call the before ringer. we get out of here. Speaking of. What up, guys? Hey, Adam, I noticed that uh, Twitter thing about the PlayStation you're looking at, uh, you're disappointed in what games were not. I always thought you guys are somewhat gamers, at least for old school. What, what, why wouldn't these companies ever think about remaking their games with better graphics? Like, I'm pretty, there's, there's obviously business in it because Nintendo does that with their Pokemon games all the time. Like they when they they have the DS versions, and then they got the 3D DS with um, the 3D like uh, they made a Pokemon uh, Sapphire, Pokemon Omega Sapphire and Ruby stuff like that, and then now they got a they re, they did basically like the the Pokemon Yellow and they put it on the Nintendo Switch with like some really badass graphics, and um, that'd be like I would love to like have. Like the old school Grand Theft Auto games on these up to date uh, graphics, like I would buy it. I'm pretty sure people would. Um, just your thoughts. Uh, I don't know what you guys think, but take care, guys. For me, graphics are the last thing I care about in a game. But I'm a retro gamer, and they have done that with some games. Crash Bandicoot got a remake of the first three games called the Insane Trilogy. I think they're doing one for Spyro the Dragon. It's been done a little bit here and there, and there's supposed to be one coming out at some point. It's turned into detox with Final Fantasy VII finally getting a remake. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, for me, I don't, like you mentioned Grand Theft Auto. The old Grand Theft Auto, if you remember, was an overhead, you know, look down. The original, view. yeah. The, the, the first couple were. The British one. Yeah, it wasn't until GTA Three where it became like the fully, you know, three-dimensional yeah. on the ground and all that. Open world sandbox. Right. So if you're going to do it the old way, I just don't know from a graphic standpoint, what enhancements are you going to make? If I'm just using Grand Theft Auto as an example, if Grand Theft Auto the original or Grand Theft Auto 2 came out with enhanced graphics, you're still kind of limited with what you're doing if you're going to have that sort of view of the entire world as opposed to yeah. having a 3D layout. So from that standpoint... It's just, like SimCity. Yeah, with that with that <laughs> game specifically, there's only so much you can do when you're upticking the graphics. So Does he want the PlayStation 2 ones to be updated? Is that where people are at now? Or like, that's not even good enough for me. I can't play that game. The graphics look horrible now. I mean, I guess. Is that where we're at now? Probably. You, just, Some, you want guys to jump out of the screen and literally punch you in the face. That's how realistic you want it to be. That's what, enjoy that. That's what they want. I'm cool, actually. I'm good. I don't need that. I do think there's something to the 16-bit graphics aged better than the 32-bit graphics. The polygons and mm-hmm. the squares and all that. But this PlayStation uh, that just came out or is coming out, the PlayStation Classic. The loaded games, yeah. They finally gave you the entire game list today. 
Okay, good. And they were missing a lot of games, and I said some of the ones on my Twitter account that I would have put in there. We talked about when they released the first five that were going to be on there. Right, right. But, yeah, there's there's some uh, omissions here. But there I, was go- By the way, there was going to be. It just That's just yeah. how these things work out. It'd be nice if they did more than 20 preloaded games. Right. They could easily do that. Or but you can purchase an add-on pack or something. Yeah. Like, here's an additional 20 coming out this year. Here's another 20 coming out next year. And do it that way. Maybe they will, but they haven't yet for the NES Classic yeah. or the Super Nintendo. That's the crazy part. You know they have the capability of doing it, so I don't know why. they want. Right. So, I don't know. It's yeah. weird to me. Yeah. All right. Who wins? Alex? Alex was pretty the kid good, actually. From Ontario? Alex was actually pretty good. Alex was good. Yeah. Lamenting the Dodgers' loss. Right. No, that was a good call. We're not picking him just because we agreed with us, are we? Well, yes. sometimes that helps. Yes. <laughs> we did said, not listen to that call no, before but, we did this show, and he said the exact same thing we did about Kershaw. 100% honest to God's truth. We do not listen to these calls before we air them. This is organic, man. Damn straight. Shout out Tom Looney. That's right. <laughs> Love you, Looney. <laughs> All right, Alex in Ontario. Hit me up on Twitter at follow Adam, Adam A. Slide into my DMs. Give me your PayPal address, and I'll go. give you $40. You can also hit us up at FNA Show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.com slash FNA Show. Thanks again to Kevin Kennedy oh my. for joining us on the show. Oh, no. Took a lot of time out of his day to spend with us two losers, so we appreciate it. He just, just wound him up and let him go. Exactly. That's all you need. He had so many thoughts on this series, as you would expect. Mm-hmm. It's the em- skipper. Emptied the chamber, man. That's what we love about the skip. I mean, the PMS interview is okay, but we had him for 45 minutes. Please. Extended edition. That's right. That's how we do it. Yeah, long D style. Enhanced edition. <laughs> With Bluetooth. All right, we'll talk to you guys later this week. For Adam, I'm Kevin. This has been another edition of the FNA podcast. FNAPodcast.com. I love the power glove. It's so bad. 